You know, I've been coming in for six years, and six years you've been sticking it to me. I want to know how come. You don't want to know. Yeah, I want to know how come. You want to know? I want to know! Okay, I'm gonna tell you. Welcome back to another episode of Growing Up Punk, the podcast about punk rock and all of its friends. We are so glad to have you. We hope you guys are, guys and gals are staying safe out there, um, but still hopefully you're having some opportunities to, to enjoy the summer heat. It doesn't last very long, at least where we are, and so hope you guys are having an awesome summer. So thanks for taking the time to to check out another episode today, we've got an awesome interview today with a guy named Ethan Luck, and I'll share a bit more about um, what we got to talk uh, with him about in a few minutes. But first of all, um, if you are new to the show, please go check us out on our social media platforms. Um, you can check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Growing Punk Pod, and you can check out um, myself and David's uh, different um, profiles from there or whatever. We love hearing from you guys, so thanks for those of you that are uh, sending us messages or commenting. We love this show to be interactive, and so we want to be hearing from you what you think about the episodes. Um, if you have any ideas or suggestions, we do our best to, to take those into account so that this show can be uh, the best show it can be. So today, we, you will be hearing my interview with Ethan Luck. If you are unfamiliar with him, he has been playing music in various bands for for 20 plus years now. I originally met Ethan in 2002 when he was playing guitar with the Supertones and so um even you know I've known him now for you know 18 years and so it was really cool to to get to catch up with him and talk and just kind of see um where he's at now and how far he's come and what that journey's been like. Some of the things we touch on is what it was like joining his first actual band that he started touring with, which was the band called The Dingies, how he's never actually been signed to Tooth & Nail, even though he's been in multiple Tooth & Nail bands, the transition between different bands, including style and instruments, how he always seems to join well-established bands, what it was like touring the world with Kings of Leon, and the drastic shift between touring and more underground bands, so to speak, versus mainstream bands playing arenas. He also mentions playing on The Tonight Show with Reliant K, playing in front of 80,000 people with the Supertones, and then we end with him sharing three albums that were really influential to his style of music. We also cover a ton of other stuff. It's uh, quite a long episode, um, so bear with us, but there was just so much good stuff, it was it was hard to stop, and so... I hope uh, there's a lo lots of good stuff in here for you guys that you find interesting, as I do. So uh, kick back, get a snack, and enjoy my conversation with Ethan Luck.
So today we've got Ethan Luck on the show. He has played in many bands that you may or may not be familiar with, but as we kind of talk through some of the bands he's played in, hopefully there'll be you know, something you'll recognize. If not, go check it out because he's an amazingly skilled musician and has lots of experience in studio and touring bands and has been around forever. We were just talking about how the first time I met Ethan was in 2002, and that's you know already 18 years ago, and he's... He's still at it, so it's it's uh, really cool to have you on the show today. <laughs> well, you're too kind. You, you Canadians are so nice. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we, we gotta we gotta take what we can get here. So, <laughs> that, dude, that, that that's crazy. That was 18 years ago. That that I was <laughs> I was coming through Canada, and I, when you and I met. That's so wild to me. It, that tour doesn't seem like that long ago. Yeah, well, that was I mean the year I graduated high school, and that feels like forever ago. So if I think of it in those terms and what's happened since, like. It feels like an eternity ago, but because, you know, you're kind of doing the same thing you've, you've been doing. So maybe, you know, maybe it just feels like it goes by quicker because you're, you know, you've still been touring and playing with lots of different artists. And so do you feel like that kind of like almost freezes time a bit because you haven't really, or I mean, I'm assuming, you know, I guess I shouldn't say you haven't, you know, done other things, but you know. I've, I mean, I've kind of done other things, but mainly, yeah, I mean, I haven't, I haven't stopped touring since 1998. <laughs> um, but yeah, it does sometimes feel like, uh, you know, time goes by way too quick in this world, you know, and there's a lot of musicians that'll say that, that, that have toured for a long time. Um, specifically, when you talk about, you know, us meeting in 2002, uh, there's certain tours I think back on and... Um, even recently, last few days, I've been like cataloging old photos and photo discs and backing them up on hard drives. Yeah. You know, because I used to st- I used to store photos on on CDRs. But um, I'm just trying to organize all that stuff. And so I've been posting a couple photos from like just past tours and bands and stuff. And just looking through photos, I'm like, that does not seem like it was whatever 20 years ago or something. Um, it's a trip sometimes. I mean, so, oh, there's there's so many vivid memories in my mind from every tour I've ever done. And uh, I always, I feel like I've got a good memory for a lot of that stuff and venues I've played in cities mm-hmm. and the different stories like that, 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 yeah, sometimes, you know, me and, you know, one of the guys from my old band or whatever, will be talking about something and I'm like, that was that long ago. That's like, like there's no way. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Time just kind of goes. And I was, uh, so my daughter is a, a super tones fan. And so she was asking who I was talking with tonight. And so when I told her, she wanted to see a picture and. So I was Googling some, <laughs> some pictures of the band when you were in it, and, and you definitely look like, you know, you can look at it and it's like, okay, that's definitely Ethan from, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So I guess, you know, maybe for you, because it's, you know, your day in, day out, but I guess as an as a outsider, I look and, you know, I can obviously see the difference. I'm, I'm not trying to say you, I'm not trying to say you're age. Well, you are aging. I'm not trying to say you're aging poorly or yeah. anything. You know what I mean? But you know, you look breaking news. <laughs> we're all aging, <laughs> but you just, you look at it. And it's like, Oh man, like I, I do the same with myself with photo albums, you know, when I've had my first kid or whatever. And, 
And uh, so, anyways, that's that's a whole other thing. Time time goes yeah. by, so that's that's just how it goes. Well, I'm, gl- but. <laughs> I'm glad your daughter's a fan. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So, what would you say is you know, like one main experience that you had in your life that that really made you think, you know, I want to play music for the rest of my life, or what was that the thought, or was it just did it just kind of happen? Uh, I don't. I mean, at a young that happened at a young age. Um, I started playing guitar when I was like 11 years old, I think. And, um, I didn't necessarily have that light bulb moment. Like I'm going to do this for a living. Uh, but my, my dad's a guitar player and, and he played in bands and toured around and, um, you know, growing up, I always would watch him play guitar and play with his friends and, you know, he has record collection and I would, you know, as a kid go pick out back in California, go, you know, I go pick out records and we play them. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't until my family moved, uh, from Long Beach, California down to Orange County that I started getting an interest in guitar. I was like playing baseball, like, a, you know, a regular California kid, just like going to the beach and playing little league baseball. But, uh, one day something just kind of clicked. I was already kind of getting into music. Um, you know, I was already like, you know, fans of, of certain bands and stuff. I didn't really know anything about the bands cause you know, this is pre-internet and stuff, but right. you know, I would just hear stuff on the radio, like on K-Rock or this old hard rock station called KNAC back then. And I would just hear stuff that I liked. And then, uh, one day my dad just asked me if I wanted to play an instrument and I told him drums and he said, uh, maybe we could try a guitar first and see how that goes. Mm. <laughs> cause I think he was worried just about the noise. Right. Uh, and rightfully so drums are loud. Um, so I ended up trying guitar and you know, but I think, yeah, I think that moment was my, was kind of looking at my dad and asking him to figure out a song and he would figure it out by ear. And I thought that's what I want to do hmm. now as an 11 year old, I never thought, Oh, this could be my job one day. There's, there's, you know, that, that wasn't even a thought on either end of it. You know, it, it was just something I just want to play guitar. And then once I, you know, through whether it was church or high, junior high or high school, I like started meeting friends that also played instruments and that just, only amplified my love of of music yeah and i guess that that just kind of kept going and never went away right oh yeah still here i mean i was literally just sitting here playing guitar through an amp (laughs) before you called you know i mean that's yeah if you i mean if you yeah if you see my studio or i mean there's guitars hanging everywhere and stuff i've collected and stuff over the years so it's like i'm I'm still obsessed with it, you know. I'm I'm a avid vinyl collector, and I'm, I'm I'm always immersed in music. There's not a day that goes by that like some kind of music isn't played on the record player or by me, you know, yeah, in our house. Love that. Is your is your dad still alive? Yeah, yeah, he's still alive. He's still he's out in California still, and uh, he doesn't play professionally. He hasn't for a long time. Uh, I think once he, once him and my mom had me and my twin sister when you know back in '78. Uh, he did it for a few more years, kind of locally at bars and stuff like that. But you know, back then it was just tough. He was just like, "I gotta get a, I gotta get a better job that you know can pay the bills and raise two kids at once." Yeah. So, what, what does he think of you, like still being a musician? Did he ever, you know, think that was going to happen, or has it kind of progressed? You know, each time you joined a different band or did a different project, you know, was he kind of just like, "Yep, that's just Ethan doing his thing," or was it like, "Okay, you're still yeah, doing this, hey?" <laughs> Yeah, I th- I think he I think he saw at a at a young age that that I wasn't going to stop doing this. Um even if I hadn't like, you know, gone into it as as a job, you know, I think he just saw like my passion for it and he saw how much I was practicing and you know how excited I was when I would, you know, make some new friends that played drums or bass and then I would go to their house and we would jam and 
Um, you know, but of course, once I started getting to the point where I was like, it was my full-time job, then, you know, he was proud of me the whole time. But I mean, that, that only kind of like amplified it, I think. Like, you know, I think because I, I took it many steps further than my dad did. Right. Um, I think he was just that much more excited that like, you know, Hey, you, you know, I, I went this far and, and you've just <laughs> sprinted past me, Yeah, that's <laughs> you know, awesome. um, cause my dad, I mean, he probably, he probably stopped playing, uh, not necessarily out or live, but stopped playing or tr- stopped trying to make it like a career. Maybe like, I don't know, maybe like the, by the mid eighties or something. Hmm. Um, because at that point I had a little sister, so there's three kids, you know, so it was for him, it was tough, you know, and, and it wasn't like he was in this established band that was already making a bunch of money and he could afford, you know, to raise his family and still be on the road and stuff like a lot of people can now. But, yeah. um, <clears throat> yeah, it was just, it was just a, a different time and it was, it was, he was in a different position, you know, and for me, like I don't have kids and so I've been able to keep doing this and not that you can't tour and, and, and have kids, you know, thousands of people and, and musicians that do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, yeah, I don't know, man. I just, I just stuck with it and it's all I've ever wanted to do. It's all I still want to do. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot, you know, a lot of people that have amazing careers as lawyers or doctors or even an accountant or a business manager or something. It's like you go to school for that. You learn all these traits and all these skills to do that job. And, I look at it like I put in that same amount of time, but with instruments, you know? Yeah. And there's also and, and, almost like so much more possibility with that. You know, you become, well, I, I mean, you're, you're always learning with anything, but you know, as a musician, you know, if you're open to it, you know, you get a studio gig with, you know, a country band or a punk band or whatever, and you have all these opportunities where it's like, you know, I can't really learn this in school, but I've got these skills that I can now use for something totally different and keep learning and growing and so right. that's, that's what's really neat about music like and so with saying that i i get that every you know occupation there's there's room to grow and things to learn but you know say for an accountant it's like you know if you're really good with numbers you're really good with numbers you're just going to kind of use it in different in different cases but with a musician like there's so much kind of back and forth with that yeah and, and, you know, and, and it's not like it, it, you know, it comes without struggle too, you know, it's like, oh, uh, sure. you know, you might have a, a, you might, let's say you're an accountant or a lawyer or something, you know, you might be very passionate about that job and, and, and it's, let's say it's, you know, very secure for most of your life. You know I mean? I tell a lot of people, like if there's anyone that's like kind of coming up that ever asked me like, Hey, got any advice for me? <laughs> you know? Um, which is always weird for me to give someone advice. I, I just feel weird doing <laughs> it. But what I will usually say is like, um, just know that it's, it's, it's not all just sunshine and rainbows every day. And, yeah. and, and most people aren't going to get to do what, what I've done. And I haven't even done it on a level like some of these, you know, like you look at bands like the Foo Fighters or whatever that right. are massive bands that could go sell out stadiums. You know, I was lucky enough to be able to do it to where, you know, on that kind of mid level where it's like, hey, I'm making a living. This is great. But I mean, there's so many ups and downs. I mean, for years and years till present day, I mean, I I still have to go work side jobs and do all that stuff that I don't want to do. Right. But that that side work and that that boring job or having to go out and do Uber and Lyft and pick up a bunch of 
you know, drunk tourists around Nashville. <laughs> you know, that <laughs> that kind of stuff sucks. But you can play your CD you know, in the car while they're while they're driving and some free promotion. Oh, no way, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a big no no in Nashville, at least for me. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of Uber drivers that do that in Nashville, like, hey, check out my new country song. But uh <laughs> But no, those are the things that you just, you know, in my mind, it's like, I have to do that to get to that next step of being back on the road, you know, or whatever, you know, it's, it, it, it fills the time and, yeah. you know, um, and there's been times where like, if I've had great jobs in music where like I've been on a, a, a yearly salary where it's like, great, I don't have to worry when I come home for this month that I'm going to be able to pay my bills or not, mm. you know, or other times it's like, you know, it all, it all just depends, man, in, in this world, like sometimes you get you know, a gig that's salary based. Sometimes it's just weekly. And when you're off the road, you don't get paid anything. Yeah. Um, it all just depends, man. I mean, it's it, for the most part, you you know, most musicians that get into something probably aren't going to find a salary gig. Um, when it does happen, it's great, but, uh, it's, it's not as common as it used to be. Um, so yeah, you have to have, you know, have little side hustle things, you know, like I try to do studio work, which that's a whole nother struggle yeah. <laughs> in and of itself you know, to get involved in a Nashville, um, you know, I'll do studio work from home and send it to people. And, you know, you just, anything I can do that involves music, uh, that helps pay the bills and stuff. Like I'll do that first, you know? And then if I have to go do a little side hustle thing, that's fine. I'll, you know, I'll go do it and suck it up. And, you know, one day you look back and like, cool, I did that. Great. But now I'm here back on the road doing this. Yeah. And I guess that's the biggest shift from what we were just talking about, you know, like with, an accountant to a lawyer, you you know, you get in your job or that firm and you just do it till you retire. Whereas a musician, like you said, right, there's so much back and forth. You might have a salary gig for a year and then you have no work for six months. And, you know, right. maybe, yeah, you're touring the world and, you know, getting to hang out with your friends and do all this really cool stuff. But it definitely comes at a cost. It totally does. You know, it, it's again, it's it's easily one of the most inconsistent and unstable industries in the world. Hmm. You know, yeah. um I mean, in a, in a, in a, in a year's time, I'll, I'll have five different jobs just in music, yeah. you know, it's like, Oh, Hey, I got hired to go out and be a drum tech for three months with this band. And then I went out for this month and played guitar for this guy. And then for the next three months, I'm back to teching. And it's like, it's so up and down, man. It's, you know, that, that's the tough part about kind of giving someone advice on how to get into it. It's like, just keep playing, keep playing. And and don't ever do it for the money. But if that comes along, then that's just a bonus. Yeah. Would you say you there's part of you that enjoys that kind of maybe unknown or just a change where it's like, okay, I'm playing, you know, drums for a band for however long. And now I'm, you know, teching or guitar, you know, it's a bit different. Um, does that kind of excite you or, or is it just kind of it is what it is and you'll kind of do whatever? Uh, it's kind of both, I guess. I mean, there, you know, there's... I'm not going to lie and say that like, you know, when I can't, you know, find an artist to go play for, for a tour and I have to go into teching because those jobs are a lot easier to get in the music world. Um, if you know what you're doing, of course. Right. Um, <clears throat> you know, and there's a part of me that's like, you know, I'm kind of crushed like, oh, like for years and years I've been the guy playing the songs and, and, uh, or playing the drums or guitar or whatever. You know, and now I got to go tune the guitar for the guy doing that now. Right. You know, and there's there is that feeling of like, ah, oh, did I just fail? You know, did I just, did I just get knocked down a notch kind of thing? Right. Um. But you know, I, I've done I've done that enough too, where you know you kind of get used to it, and you always have to look, you know, on the bright side. On the bright side of it, it's like, okay, yeah, I'm, 
I'm out here teching for whatever band, you know, they're having a much better time than I am on, you know, on stage. Right. But, you know, I'm still traveling. I'm still around music. Uh, and it also affords me the time to kind of be away from home and in new spaces and hotel rooms to work on my own music. And I mean, most of my solo music I've put out, I've written in hotel rooms. Yeah. Yeah. That's- and so that's, you have to kind of retrain your brain when you jump into something like that, you know, cause it is a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a blow to, to your ego, <laughs> you yeah. know, not that I, I, I feel like I'm this egotistical person, but you know, for so long you're, you're the guy on stage and like people are singing the words back and you're having a blast. And then all of a sudden now you're the guy on the sidelines watching, you know, it's like, it's like watching your dreams pass you by yeah, in a way. That's a humbling feeling. So, I'm sure. It totally is. And so you have to kind of, jump into it like okay like this isn't permanent like i'm not gonna be tuning guitars the rest of my life this is just this season right now like that's just how it is like as much as like people you know musicians move to nashville all the time and think they're gonna make it like it's a really tough town and so and i've lived here off and on for 17 years and so yeah it's just just tough man you just have to kind of like swallow your pride and be like okay like this is work it's good work it's good paying work and it's something that still keeps me traveling seeing different cities and seeing friends around the country around the world and seeing other parts of the world seeing saskatoon you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> stuff like that <laughs> yeah well, that's awesome do you remember the first uh live performance that you saw that um you know kind of going back to when you got into music you know was there a live performance that sparked your interest so it wasn't just you kind of learning how to play something just for the fun of it but that you could you know play music for other people and kind of yeah um well, I mean, since I started playing music so young, I, I never, I don't I don't think I really started going to any shows until I was probably in my early teens. Okay. And a lot of that was like, you know, because I was so involved in church back then, it was a lot of like, you know, bands would come and play at your church or whatever, or like whatever local church in Orange County. And, um, but I think for me, a lot of it had to do with the early tooth and nail scene because my, my cousin used to work for tooth and nail when they were still based in, um, Orange County oh, in wow. Irvine. Cool. Um, he, he was in a tooth and nail band as well. And so he would like at Christmas, he would always give me a bunch of tooth and nail stuff, like early stuff. This is like, this is like 93, 94. Yeah, I that's think awesome. I can't remember exactly what year. So he was giving me like the early, you know, tooth and nail shirts. And I thought it was so cool. And because all my friends at church were showing me like these Christian rock bands and they were all so terrible. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> I never liked P- Petra or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. I just thought it was so cheesy. I'm like, there's got to be something better out there. And so tooth and nail stuff, you know, this is before I was even on the label was, you know, really piquing my interest. And, and then, you know, I remember uh, a couple shows in particular that really, at this point I was already playing like at church. I was, I was playing uh, like high school parties and stuff, but never like a proper show at a club or anything. Yeah. But I, but I remember I remember like being in high school and, and seeing MXPX's I think it was their first ever show in Southern California. say they were they maybe had the first two records out okay um but they played at like this church like five minutes from my house and i went to the show and i'm like dude this is so good and it was 
I just got obsessed with that band and um, it was that and then I remember going to see I think I was I remember seeing Rush in like 94 when I was like a sophomore in high school that was pretty awesome yeah uh, but that didn't seem realistic this is they were an arena band, right you know? but I remember change oh yeah totally but I remember going to see I think it was um, two two main besides MXPX show two shows in particular were uh, I believe it was in 94 as well maybe 93 actually I went, I went and saw Fishbone uh, at this venue uh, called the Showcase Theater in Corona and it was so good and I was like in the pit and like going crazy and like the singer like jumped in the crowd and his boot hit me in the face and I thought it was the most <laughs> awesome thing oh, I had like a swollen eye the next day at school and I thought it was so bitching that <laughs> everyone's like you gonna fight and I was like no I got kicked in the face by Angela Moore from Fishbone and everyone's like who's that like, you wouldn't get it <laughs> oh that's awesome um but yeah, man. So I'd say by late high school, I was, I mean, I was in like, you know, little local bands with friends and we would play, we would play shows around Orange County and it was super fun. Um, but yeah, I don't think I really understood that it could be a job until probably 2000, maybe probably like when I, when I had kind of rejoined the Supertones cause I was in the band when I was in high school. Oh, okay when they were a whole different band, they were just a different name, different right, style yeah. and everything. And they honed in on the ska sound. And then at that point I was still in high school and they were all out of high school. I was the young one. And so I had to kind of bow out of the band cause they were like, we're going to go on the road. You know, can you do schoolwork from the road? I was like, there's no way my, a, my parents can let me do that. And B, I, I don't want to do that as far as like, I, yes, I want to go on the road, but I'm not going to do homework on the road. Yeah. Yeah. That seems crazy. Yeah, awesome. Well, we're going to get into uh, to some of these bands. We'll get to Supertones in a bit, but uh, I want to start with um, your band, The Dingies. My yeah. first um, introduction to you, um, and I can still picture um, the music video for uh, maybe it was Bulletproof or something, like the one where you guys are kind of walking chaos around. Control. Or Chaos Control, yeah. And, a uh, super boring video. <laughs> oh, man. I used to think that was the coolest. You know, it's on an old tooth and nail video. You guys were just kind of walking yeah. around town and just looking amazing. And, and uh, we were tr- we were trying, man. <laughs> well, well, you succeeded for a small town kid like me who hadn't experienced... Uh, that kind of thing. So, um, how how long had the Dingies been writing and playing together before you guys signed with Tooth and Nail? Um, well, the Dingies kind of started as a Supertone side project, right? Yeah, in I a way. So, that. yeah. So it was like Pegleg and Bean, and uh, I believe Jeff, and then also so at the time Brian, who was playing guitar on the Supertones, who I ended up when I came back, I replaced him. He was kind of in the dingies, uh, 
Tony, the bass player at Supertones, is also a really good drummer. So he was playing drums in the Dingies, and it was just like this local, kind of dirtier ska band, a little more kind of had a like when like kind of when like when Rancid does ska, kind of that kind of right. vibe, I guess. Um, and you know, it was just like this fun thing. And then Dave, the sax player in Supertones at the time, he, who would end up actually joining the Dingies, um, he was he would play and stuff. And so the Supertones were blowing up at this point. And when they would go on the road forever, and then all of a sudden the Dingies were like, uh, okay, so there's basically three of us. Like, we need somebody else to come in, and let's make this a band. So they were writing songs for I don't know, I'd say probably two years before I kind of oh, okay. I, I well, knew I, I knew I knew all the guys. I, I was I was in that kind of circle and friends with everybody because of the Supertones dudes. But um, and you know they knew me as a guitar player, but also knew I played drums too. And so uh, one of the dudes hit me up and said, Hey, you want to come over and jam with us and see how it goes because i think they had they had tried out a couple people and so uh i was actually uh talking to jeff holmes not too long ago the guitar player we're still buddies and he was on the first record and uh he he told me he said man he said i remember when you came over to play uh with us in pegleg's parents garage he's like we had just written that song rebel youth yeah love it and uh and he said the second you hit the first snare drum, it was so loud that we all were like, yeah, yeah, he's going to play with us. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. <laughs> so, and then, yeah, and then so, yeah, that, that that happened there. But what's funny is I actually never I actually never signed. Uh, I think they had already signed a Tooth and Nail right before I started. Oh, uh, okay. I think. I could be wrong, but uh, that's, a, that's a little fun fact that any Tooth and Nail nerd may not know about me is that I've actually never been signed to the label. Wow. Yeah, that's... Ever. Hmm. <laughs> Which maybe I mean maybe that comes with its perks. You don't have to worry about contracts and all that kind of stuff. You just you know come yeah, in and totally, go out man. when you want. There, yeah, there's definitely perks like that. But it's you know, uh, you know, there's other there's other things that you know, uh, you know that aren't so good about doing that. You know, it's like uh, you have to be really careful about you know when it comes to like publishing or like ownership right. in a band and things like that. You know, um, but uh, I didn't know any better back then, man. I was I was a, still a teenager, just ready to just get on the road and go play music and i didn't care what i made i didn't care if i was on the label officially i didn't care about royalties i didn't care about any of that stuff yeah how did it feel being on tooth and nail after kind of having that experience of was that your cousin you said being on there and just kind of yeah. being aware of you know the cool factor of it and then now you're in a band on that label what what did that feel like um it was cool i mean i don't know i i I think I had a bit of a different feeling once we were kind of on the label and we had, we had recorded that first record Armageddon Massive with Steve Kravak. I thought all that was awesome and it was so cool, you know, you know, we're recording with Steve who did, you know, Life in General and all these other great records at West Beach and Hollywood and and uh I I don't know, I just kind of felt excited that I was a part of something that other people were excited about and yeah. that I was also excited about when I was a bit younger. Um I just thought it was cool, man, because I think, I mean, for me, there was kind of a golden era of Tooth and & Nail, and it was kind of like 95 to like maybe like the early 2000s. Yep. And there was still great stuff they put out after that, but there, this was this era where like Tooth and & Nail just dominated like, you know, Cornerstone Festival in Illinois. It's like they had a whole Tooth and & Nail day, you know? Right. It's like, I feel like all these little Christian kids that grew up in church with like lame music finally had something to like listen to that was cool. You know, and because it's like, you know, it is like if I, I don't know if you grew up in church, or whatever, but, yeah. you know, Christian music sounds like Christian music, you know, and it's and, you know, 
I don't know. I've just I've just never really cared for a lot of it, and uh, I don't. I've never even really liked the term Christian music because I've never thought of it as as, as a genre. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's just music. You know, and you sing about this, they sing about that, or whatever. Um, but yeah, man, it was super exciting to, to you know, and I don't I don't think that that excitement really, uh, I guess peaked until we went we went on our first tour. So how much did the Dingies tour, like if some of the guys were in Supertones or what was that dynamic like? Like were you guys able to tour, you know, somewhat full time oh, yeah, or totally. was it? No, we, t- we we toured pretty full time out of the gate. Like, because well, at this point, by, by the time like I, I kind of went over there and tried out on drums or whatever, like at that point they had already kind of decided, let's make this like a, a, a real band that's not just local. And um <clears throat> You know, and obviously the dudes that were in the Supertones that would play in it, they were busy on the road, so it became its own thing and not a, just a side project anymore. Right. Um, so, I mean, and there there was a good amount of time when I first set, set foot in Peg Leg's parents' garage to the time we recorded, you know, Armageddon Massive. You know, we we started writing a bunch of more songs, and then we ended up demoing like six of them at this, uh, this uh, little studio in Laguna Beach that Time Bomb uh, Recordings owned, and... Um, you know, so we spent a lot of time with the songs, and then by the time we were on the road, I mean, yeah, I mean, our first tour was probably six to seven weeks long. Okay, it was uh, we were the opener for uh, Value Pack and Goody Hook. Oh yeah, and, yeah. Uh, God, when was that? Spring of '98, I believe. Yeah, man, that would have been like a dream tour for me. <laughs> it was fun, man, and that was you know again, it was it was that exciting kind of golden age of tooth and nail where like especially with like punk rock stuff, like anything tooth and nail would put out, like a little teaser or a little ad ad in a magazine. You know, you just saw a picture of Goaty Hook or whoever, and and it was just like, I don't care what that is, I gotta get it, or I yeah. gotta go to that show, you know. And so, so once we went up, started that tour, it, all of a sudden it was like, holy crap, this is like seeing. That was the first time I actually saw like, you know, a few hundred people like singing dingy songs back to us while we're playing. It was it was such a trip. Like I'd never experienced that on that level at all, you know. Yeah, and that's one of the things that, like I was so intrigued about. Like from a, like I said before, a small town kid like me, like yeah, I'd get the magazines and sampler CDs, and I just assumed you know every band on Tooth and Nail was huge. And you know now that I've been doing some interviews, yeah. I've come to find out you know it wasn't always as it seemed. But um, that that's cool that you had that experience that you know you were you were seeing that you know that kind of fluctuation of. Of yeah. people coming out and knowing who you were because you know you were on this label and playing with these other bands and yeah that's that's so cool. Well, I mean that's what that's really one of the I mean one of the best things Tooth and Nail did back then. I mean it was hype bands. I mean you know like you said like it seemed like every Tooth and Nail band was huge. You know and the Dingies weren't huge by any means. I mean I think it seems like over the years it's become more of kind of a cult following for the Dingies. Right. Um, but I mean. I think that first record sold, and this is good, by the way, for, for back then. I think it sold like 40,000 records. Yeah, that's, that sounds awesome. And for us, it was like, oh my gosh, you know, you know, uh, it's, you know, it's compared to like the Supertones at the time when they were doing Strike Back, and, you know, I mean, at the time that record's, you know, going gold or something. I mean, you know, that's that's a huge difference, you know. We, we weren't this big selling band, but, um, but I, you know, I didn't care really. I just like if we were playing shows and there were people that were excited and like going crazy in the crowd, like th- that's all I really needed, you know. But we also played tiny shows, you know. We would go out and, you know, hey, we're going to start a tour, you know, 
in the Midwest somewhere and we're driving all the way there to start the first show and we're going to play a couple shows along the way and there'd be like maybe 50 kids total because we're there by ourselves and right. not with a, yeah. a goatee hook or whatever. You know, and so that's where you saw like, okay, like not everyone's here for us you know, for yeah. these shows, but... But, you know, but still when there's 40 or 50 kids, like that was still exciting to me. And those, those are the kids that still paid money to come see you. And it just blew me away that like, you know, someone from the middle of nowhere, Texas or, you know, up in Saskatchewan, like somehow had this CD of, of this little band from Orange County, you know, um, that blew my mind that like our music was all over the place. Yeah. That seems like a pretty common thing, especially back then, you know, obviously there was no streaming. Everything was just your music was kind of with you, right? Either it was on CD or you were playing it live. And uh-huh. uh, and so that's kind of how, you know, word of mouth got around and stuff. And so you, did, you, you didn't really have any way to gauge of who was listening to you, right? Whereas now you can, you know, look that up online or, you know, Spotify and yeah. all that. And so that's, yeah, it must have been. So that, that's probably cool for you starting from where you did to now where you are. I mean, obviously there's been totally. such a huge shift, you know, that's, that's just a cool thought to have that, you know, just yeah. how many different decades you've been in and seen the music industry, you know, go up and down and shift and so that's, uh, <laughs> mostly down, mostly down. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess it depends how you look at it. Like it's easier to access music now and, you know, oh, for sure. Have it yeah. all there. But so you, re- you mentioned recording with Steve Kravak. Was that your first experience in kind of a, like a legit studio or with a producer who kind of knew what he was doing? That was my first experience with like a, 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 in my mind, a producer that was like you know, on the top of the mountain, you know, because he had done Life in General and, and, you know, me and all my friends and everybody loved that record and it sounded yeah, so sure. good. And, and I think it still sounds good. Oh, Same, I love it. You know, slowly, in the, slowly going away the Buffalo. And uh, I, I had done some recording in, in studios. Um, like I had a local band and, and, you know, back in high school and we saved up like 300 bucks and recorded out at Bob Moon's studio, who was a early tooth and nail producer did yeah. teenage politics and stuff like that and that was really cool and a cool experience but like when when i got to work with steve it was like steve totally kicked my ass in the studio he, he was we, we had a nickname for him we called him dr steve kravakian <laughs> you know that you know that reference but um he was just he's the, he's the sweetest dude and such a good hang but he is a taskmaster in the studio like I thought I went in there, you know, knowing everything like, oh, I got these songs down. No problem. You know, and I'm setting up extra drums and extra cymbals. And it's like, and he was the one that taught me to simplify playing. And uh, I've told him this. I, I had him on my podcast two years ago. When, yeah, when, yeah, I heard that. Our, yeah. So when Armageddon Massive turned 20, I did four episodes with the three other dudes in the band and Steve, all, all separate episodes. And I told Steve, I was like, man, you're the reason that that I play as simply as I do now or, you know, or, or I guess the better way to put it is I play to, uh, to help, help the song, not to be like the star of the song. Right. You know, when you're younger, you just want to play as fast as possible and as many beats or as many notes as possible and set up splash cymbals and all these little things on your drum kit to, to, you know, cause I was listening to everything from rancid to no doubt or whatever. And I would see a drummer put up a China or whatever symbol. Yeah. Like, I gotta do. I gotta do that too, you know. And so Steve kind of, you know, pulled the reins in on me. And uh, I mean, I had I had a drum tech in the studio, which that was a first. Um, it might have been the last time I had a tech in the studio, actually. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it was just like a four piece kit, two uh, two crashes, hi hat, and ride, and that was it. 
And if I did any fill that was longer than like two beats, he was like, nope, too long. Uh, did that? And he uh, he grilled me, man. Did that ever cause any tension with you? Like, was there points where you're like, can I just like play this drum part I have in my head? Or, you know, because uh, I find that as I listened through this album this week, like I couldn't really remember if there was really any drum fills on it. And as a drummer, you know, and, and I get that, you know, a lot of the songs, you know, were, you know, more simple. Um, right. the way they were pieced together. So it's not like they needed a bunch of crazy drum fills, but you know, it's yeah. still nice to have something different than just the beat. And so how was For that sure, as yeah. a drummer going in and being like, okay, is this guy just like totally killing my vibe here or is it really it for the little, sake of the record? Yeah, I mean, it was a little disheartening at first just because, you know, in my mind, I, I, I we had been playing a lot of these songs live for like the last six months to a year or whatever just around town and stuff and because we hadn't gone on tour yet, but um, I mean, I, there's videos on YouTube that someone sent me one time, and I know I can tell that it's before we recorded the record, and I, and I'm watching myself play, and I'm like, wow, like I was just busier, and I, I, you know, at first I didn't understand why he was doing it. I was just like, this is such a bummer. Like, I want to play this fill that I made up or whatever, and but over the course of doing drums, I mean, we did drums for like five days or something, which nowadays like. When I like, for instance, when I did my last record, my own solo record, I did all the drums in a day and a half, you know, because I'm I'm just a different player now. Yeah. But back then, yeah, it, it it was a bummer at first, but I slowly started to understand why Steve was doing this and why I needed to do it and why the simpler drumming was better for the record. Yeah. I looking back now, what is it now? Twenty two years later, I, I would hate to hear that record with crazy busy drums. Now, if I was technically a badass drummer back then you know what i mean if 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 i was like a travis barker level drummer it might have been different because i could pull it off he he probably heard stuff that i didn't like in my mind oh i'm nailing this drum fill and he's probably in the control i'm going no you're not (laughs) and and but that's what makes a good producer you know yeah that's true they're the ones that have to tell you the bad news like hey i know you love this part and you're really married to it but it sucks and it's got to go. I'm sorry. It's just how it is, you know? Yeah. For, for those that maybe aren't familiar with the Dingies, like you guys play, you know, punk, ska, and reggae, but oftentimes you you wouldn't really, you know, even mix those. There was kind of like a punk song and then a ska and a reggae. So what was that like as a drummer, you know, recording a song that was more faster upbeat and then, you know, next song you're doing a reggae song where it's just kind of hi-hat and rim knocks and just kind of keeping it simple? Man, I, I mean, I, I love that aspect of it, that it wasn't like, you know, like compared to the supertones where you have like the verse is kind of ska and the chorus is more, you know, rock or whatever. Um, I like that we kind of, for the most part, kept every song in its own little world. Um, I, I mean, I enjoyed it. I mean, nothing nothing to me was, everything with Steve was was challenging, um, but... I think doing doing uh, having every song like that, where here's a reggae song, here's a ska song, here's a punk song, all that stuff made me a better drummer and better musician. Not only on drums, but on guitar too, because I was learning stuff. You know, I'm a guitar player longer than I am a drummer, but I would watch Jeff Holmes track guitars in the studio and, and watch Steve kind of work with him and, and tell him to do stuff, and and all, it all just made I learned so much from that record, like. I don't know if I've learned more from any record in my life than that one. I mean, yeah, that really awesome. sh- sh- shaped me as a musician on, on you know, the main three instruments that I play. Uh, you know, it's like the first influence in my life was my dad. And then, I mean, Steve Kravak is up there, man. I mean, 
if I would have never done that record, like, I don't know if yeah, I'd be even close to the musician I am today. And that's not to say, like, I'm this shredder guitar player or whatever. It, it's like just the way I approach writing and recording and playing live. It's like, you know, especially being, you know, being a drummer in that band, it's like, I, I, I'm just part of the rhythm section. I'm not, I'm not the show. Right. You know? There's a time and place for that. If you're, if you're a Travis Barker, if you're a Neil Peart or whatever, um, there's, there's room for that. And you have the skill to, to pull that off, you know? And I, I didn't, I was just like, I just want to hit the drums hard. <laughs> so, um, yeah, man. No, I, I, I'm very thankful for that that recording session back in that was '97, I think. We recorded that. Yeah. So, would you say that was your favorite memory about your time in the Dingies was getting that experience? Uh, gosh, man, I don't really thought about that. Um, I yeah, I think so. I mean that that'd be up there, man, for sure. I mean that, like I said, that 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 changed my entire world uh, and how I approached, you know, specifically drumming at the time. Um, but uh. I mean, there's a, a ton of good memory. I mean, that first tour with Cody Hook and Value Pack was a blast and stuff. And, uh, um, but yeah, recording that record is definitely, it, it, that'd be in my top two probably if I had to sit down and really think about it. Um, like I said, man, I just learned, I learned so much and, and I can't imagine that record sounding the way it would if I was, if Steve didn't, you know, wrangle me to the ground. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, that's awesome. Well, we're going to move on here to, uh, to the next one. So we're going to, not not go too in depth in this because it was just a side project. So this is one that you had with Matt from the Supertones. Um, it, it was called Gigantic. <laughs> is that is that that how was you the name of the it? record? Yeah. Okay. Not the best name. It was called Grand Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> And he coaches L.A. gigantic we, we were just going to call it gigantic but that we thought it'd be funny to do gi because grand incredible yeah not the best album title but and i'm pretty sure and i'm kind of proud of this i'm i think i a long time ago i asked brandon Ebel, what's the worst selling record under the tooth and <laughs> um, umbrella which includes you know bc and uh solid state and all that stuff. yeah and, and i don't know if this is still true but at one point that was the worst selling record under oh, the tooth and nail ethos but it was a blast to make, yeah. Um, yeah, how did this yeah, you, project come about? I don't really know a whole lot about it. Uh, honestly, um, let's see. That was... Uh, <clears throat> so 2001 is when I moved to Nashville, and I moved in with Mojo, the singer of the Supertones, because he lived out here. And I took Dan's old room, who was the trombone player, because he moved out and got married. And uh, all, all we, I was single at the time. He was single at the time, and all we did was when we weren't on the road uh, for Supertone stuff. <clears throat> all we would do is is sit in his basement and just write songs. I had a little like hard disk recorder and some speakers, and my drum set and a couple microphones, and we would just record demo after demo after demo. And um, and so 
at the time we were writing writing for a Supertones record called Hi-Fi Revival, which coincidentally is probably not the, the best Supertones record. <laughs> but uh, we were trying something new and, and whatever. Um, but so uh, the majority of the songs from that Grand Incredible record are actually, are actually either at the time unused or unfinished songs that, that we wrote for the Supertones. Okay. We just had so many songs left over. Um, <clears throat> I mean, we probably wrote like 30... 35 songs uh, in that time period and uh, so what we did was we took I think there's like 17 songs in that record and I think what we did was we kind of took those songs got rid of like the horn parts and made them more kind of rock songs and we just wanted to have fun man we had all these extra songs and it was just like this silly idea we asked Brandon we're like hey we have a bunch of songs can we do a little side project thing and he was like sure and we got like this little budget, enough to fly, basically fly us to Seattle, and that's and that was the first time uh, I had worked with Aaron Sprinkle. Okay, awesome. Um, so, if anything good came out of that record, I, it was me meeting Aaron Sprinkle, and we're still friends to this day, and he now lives in Tennessee. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah. Was there any like hopes for this project, or it was strictly just let's do an album, put it out there, and move on? I mean, there's always a hope for it, you know, even if it's a side project, you know. Um, you know, in the back of my mind, I was thinking like, okay, you know, like the Supertones are kind of, we've plateaued for sure. And, you know, starting that downhill journey. <laughs> and um, so, of course, in the back of your mind, you're thinking like, man, you know, there's some good songs on here. Like, not everything's cool. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I mean, shoot, we wrote three songs about the Lakers and put them on the record because we were that nerdy about basketball. Nice. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um but we thought, you know, there's some cool songs in here. We did a Cindy Lauper cover, and so we thought, you know, who knows? Maybe something could stick. I mean, that's really what music is, and that's what put, that's what putting records out is. Is you, you know, record labels just throw it against the wall, and most of it falls to the floor, but something might stick. And yep. in our case, we we fell to the floor. But um, yeah, I mean, we we didn't necessarily get our hopes up about anything, but you know, of course, it's always in the back of your mind anytime you record a record. Like, you know what? Maybe this, maybe this will do something. Yeah. Um, you just don't know. I mean, shoot, you know, I'm sure the dudes in Nirvana had no idea what was going to happen when they were recording. Never mind. Right. You know, to to them, they they're like, we're still going to be that little band from Aberdeen, Washington. Yeah. You know, and, and sometimes it sticks, sometimes it doesn't. You know, yeah. I'm not saying that the Grand Incredible record is anywhere near the caliber of Nevermind. It's not even close, <laughs> but that's just an example. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll have to do an episode sometime where we match those two and to contrast them. <laughs> I don't think I don't. Well, it'll be your least listened to episode. <laughs> well, it can go along with the least sales then. We'll <laughs> so how did how did exactly. how did joining the Supertones come about? Like you've mentioned a few times, you know, there was some you know crossover relationships and stuff, and yeah, well, it, it, so I I, I kind of rejoined the band in um, early 2000, like I want to say it was January, maybe like right at the beginning of the year, and uh, I'd already you know known the dudes for seven years at that point because I played with them when I was in high school, like I said earlier, and uh, I just one day I got a call from Mojo and and he said, uh, hey, um, uh, we're kicking Brian out of the band, <laughs> and uh, do you want to play some shows with us? And I, oh, I'm sorry. Wait, sorry. It started with recording. They're like, "Hey, we're recording a new record. Do you want to come in and play guitar on it?" And I was like, "Of course, yeah." Because at that time, like, I was done with the Dingies, and there was about a six month period where I was just kind of in limbo. Like, you know, what do I do? Like, I want to still want to tour, but I don't know how to like get into another band at this point. You know? Yeah. So 
Yeah, he called me, and, and so they were um, they were recording what would become Loud and Clear, the fourth record. So I went in and, and played all the guitars on it, and uh, I, so I, I was doing that. And at the same time, uh, they asked me to, "Hey, well, you want to come out and play some of these festivals?" They're just like weekend fly dates. So I was like, "Yeah, that'd be awesome." And I was like, really excited to be back on guitar, which is like my my you know my my home instrument. Yeah. And um, and kind of during so the reason like that record even though i'm the guitar player on the record like i'm not in the photo shoot and stuff is they did all that before they like officially asked me to like rejoin the band oh, yeah, and sense. they asked me it they actually asked me a couple times because i i said i think i said no initially because i was i had just gotten enrolled in this uh school in southern california to do like i was taking classes for like production engineering mixing all that stuff it was the first time i was really excited about school for once mm. And so I thought that's what I wanted to do, and I was going to maybe go be an engineer at a studio or something like that. And um, and so I thought about it long and hard, and then uh, I, I, then finally I was like, what am I thinking? Like, of course I need to do this. Like, they're an established band. They're my friends already. You know, and, and that was kind of my first taste of, okay, this could be a career, like a long-term th- career, you know, um, with the ups and downs in between, of course. But that was the first time where I was like, oh, my gosh, like, I can... I can definitely pay my bills now. This is awesome, you know? And I was still living at home at the time with my parents, but... And I think that's probably the first time my parents were probably looked at it going like, okay, like, we knew he was going to do this, but, like, you know, they came to a show and there's, like, 5,000 people there as opposed to, like, 50 people with the dingies or whatever. Right, yeah. I think they, I think they saw the size of it and were like, wow, okay, th- you know... They definitely knew at that point that I was not stopping anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. What was that like kind of joining a band that had been, you know, pretty well established already? And I mean, obviously, like you said, there was people coming out and did, did, at points did it maybe seem like too good to be true or I was just like, all right, this opportunity's come up. I'm just going to kind of take it and ride it. And yeah, I mean, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it was it was like, you know, catching a wave in the ocean. It's like I'm going to I'm going to ride this thing as long as I can, you know. Um, which ended up being about, you know, almost six years. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it, it, it didn't really intimidate me or anything just, you know, cause I was used to playing live shows and not that the dingies played like massive shows, but every once in a while at a festival, like when we, when dingies would do cornerstone or something, you know, the tent would be packed and there'd be like, I don't know what that held back then. Maybe let's say 3000 people or something. Yep. And to me, that was just the biggest crowd I'd ever play in front of. And so th- but the Supertones, obviously, they, they drew a lot more people, a much more popular band and stuff like that. So it was a little bit of a trip, you know. Um, but again, like, you know, playing music just kind of overshadowed that in a way. Like, that stuff is super exciting. 
to get in front of a big crowd, but like I was just so pumped to be on stage with my friends, like playing guitar and, uh, and, and feeling the energy of the crowd and just, you know, making sure I nailed all the parts and stuff like that. Um, cause I think they only gave me like two weeks notice, maybe like, Hey, you want to play wow. the show with us in two, two weeks yeah. and I had to learn like, you know, I don't know, 18 or 20 songs, you know? Um, and I was already familiar with most of the songs, so it wasn't terribly hard to learn them, but, uh, I don't even think I did a rehearsal with them. I think I just flew out and did the show. Oh, that's crazy. But um, yeah, that was fun. I think I want to say that was that was in 2000. I'm trying to remember. I just came. I was talking about organizing photos earlier. I just came across a photo from that first show that I did. I want to say it was some festival. Yeah, I saw that Ellen, one. Ohio, maybe the Creation or something. Or was oh no, that oh that was that was a couple years later. Oh okay. No, this was this was in in. Uh, in early summer of 2000 oh, okay i can't remember the name of the festival but i remember it being like you know one of those that had like twenty thousand people or something because creation was always known for having like eighty thousand, sometimes ninety thousand people yeah. back in the in the hey, heyday of it yeah that's amazing and get but get on stage and like not really being able to see the end of the crowd that was that was a trip at first but i got over it pretty quick like again like stuff like that you walk on stage and you see that many people and you're like oh my god that's so many um, you. I think you get kind of, at least for me, you get kind of used to it. Like I mean, the second the music starts, it's like you just feel the energy from the crowd. You kind of, it just seems fake at that point. Right. You're just having a good, a good time, you know. Yeah, man. So you guys did like you put out about five records and you know five years, give or take a bit, you know, in your time with them. How were you guys able to to pump out so much music during that time? <laughs> Uh, well, I guess, like I said earlier, man, a lot, a lot of it <clears throat> was the first two years I lived in Nashville before I moved back to California for a couple of years. Um, that's, I mean, like I said, me and Mojo, all we did was write songs, you know, and, uh, it, it was just nonstop. That's all, that's all we did. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, shoot, I, I still have songs on a hard drive that no one will ever hear for sure, <laughs> but, but stuff that never made it onto any record, you know, most of them are not good and there's, and they're not really complete, yeah. but I mean, some you know, every once in a while, I'll pa- if I'm looking for something else, I'll pass by that and click on the folder. I'm like, oh my god, I forgot about that. But uh, yeah, I mean, we were just we were just riding all the time. Even when I moved back to California, um, it was in this little apartment by the beach in South Orange County, and had my little you know recording set up and like living by myself. And I would stay up till like three or four in the morning, like every night, just demoing little ideas and stuff. Um, I mean, I still do that, <laughs> you know. Uh, I'll probably do that after we're done with this podcast episode. Yeah. Um, and does that just naturally flow? I mean, it's kind of a whole different subject, but for songwriting, like you just constantly have a flow of ideas or does it take effort? Yeah. Like you have to kind of like start with just something and kind of see where it goes. And yeah, I think, I think like musically I'm, I'm always thinking of ideas, even if I'm like driving a car or mowing the lawn or going to, to the skate park or something. i always kind of have, there's either a beat in my head or a guitar part in my head. And then sometimes I'll come home and like kind of flush it out and see what, you know, comes of it. Um, lyrically I'm, I'm way slower on that front. You know, mm. a guy like Mo- Mojo can pump out lyrics real fast, but he's also been writing his own, you know, lyrics and melodies for, you know, 30 years. Right. Uh, and I, I've always been the guy in bands that's just writing the music part of it. Yeah. So, but yeah, so I mean, I mean, even that the last record we did called Revenge, I mean, most of that was written somewhat remotely. Like I, I was in California and I would, this is, <laughs> I 
think every once in a while I would email him like an idea, you know, but back then like email attachments couldn't be more than like a megabyte or something. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. And so I would write these guitar parts and I would write full songs. And then if, if I had two or three or four songs, I would literally burn them onto a CD and mail it to Mojo in Nashville. Wow. <laughs> Just because at the time, like, I, you know, I had like slow internet and I mean, this is still the high speed internet was a thing, but it wasn't like it is now. Right. But yeah. this is, you know, this is like an O three. Um, and we were, you know, we were writing on the road and stuff like that. You know, if, if we had downtime in the dressing room or on a day off, it's, we didn't have plans. It's like we'd sit on the bus and just, you know, try to hack out stuff. You know, we were always writing stuff. And, and, and we always, before we would go into, into recording the record or any record, we would play almost all the songs live before we recorded them. Right. Um, yeah. Just to try it out and get them used to it. So we, we, were, we were always pretty, like, seasoned by the time we got in the studio. And we would, we would knock out records pretty quick. Mm. So what brought uh, or led to your departure from the Supertones? We broke up. <laughs> okay, so you were with them until that point when they kind of just, everyone decided yeah. to end? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, there was a couple more member changes, and it was basically me and Dan and Mojo were kind of the the, the main ones that people knew left. Um, and it was still fun. Like, I often think about it, like, uh, the, the the last lineup of the Supertones was, you know, me and, me and Dan and Mojo, and then our friend Brett on trumpet, who also played in that band, the W's. Oh, yeah. All right our friend Chris on bass and one of my oldest friends who's a badass drummer named John Wilson. And at, at points, man, that, that was honestly one of the, f- the funnest lineups. And, and it's funny that like the, some of the funnest years in that band were the years that we were doing the worst, like attendance wise financially. But those are also some of the most memorable and, and fun times, you know, cause mm. it kind of brings you back down to earth a little bit and, and stuff like that, you know? Um, but yeah, no, we, 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 we took it until October of 05. Okay. And that was that was our last show. And then they got back together a couple of years later. And, uh, right. Um, which I didn't think, you know, I thought that was too soon. Hmm. Um, you know, because uh, of course when you're, you know, you're in a band and you break up, you know, one of the first thoughts in your head is, okay, when can we do it again? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Depending on how it ends. You know, if it ends terribly and everyone hates each other, it's different. But we none of us hated each other. We had a, a blast at our final show. and played for like two and a half hours and stuff but uh but um yeah and then me you know me and dan got asked to do to, to be a part of the reunion thing but him and i uh, turned it down but mm. at that point i was touring for Lion k full-time so i physically couldn't even do it anyways right yeah what was you know like we mentioned before just how you've kind of seen so many different shifts and change in music what was that like you know joining supertones when they were kind of at their peak you know ska was really popular and big and then you know kind of as the years went on it kind of died down a bit was that disheartening to see or was that just kind of a part of reality and you just dealt with it uh i mean it's reality it wasn't it wasn't like we were oblivious to it you know um i mean i will i will say like bless you um i assume that was a sneeze yeah sorry i covered the (laughs) mic so i wasn't sneezing in there but i guess you still heard it um uh yeah, we we weren't oblivious to the fact that ska was becoming less and less popular. You know, at that point, you know, rap rock was huge and kid rock was huge and all that stuff. And um, but I think the one plus side of kind of being in that Christian music world, a lot of things trend later in that world and also die out later in that world. So when a lot of like the you know the bands like Real Big Fish or the Aquabats or whoever when their popularity is going down in that era, 
you know, ours was going down much slower because we had a totally different audience than they right. did. F- not for the whole time, but for the most part, yeah. you know, um, you know, uh, so yeah, I mean, it was just part of reality, man. It's like, you know, there's, there's certain types of music that come and go and they don't fully go away, but as far as, you know, mainstream success and popularity, like they're gonna, they're gonna come and go, you know? And, you know, all of us still love ska music and reggae music and stuff, but just because it wasn't on top 40 radio and stuff doesn't mean we didn't still like it. Yeah. But, you know, at a certain point, it's just not sustainable to, to remain on the road. You know, um, we probably could have done it differently and like just taken a hiatus or, or just said, Hey, you know, like we're not going to tour for a couple of years. We're just going to make records, you know, do the Beatles thing where they right. just stay off the road. And why do I compare us to the Beatles? Jeez. I did Nirvana <laughs> now the Beatles. I'm s- that's so yeah, that's dumb. It's all, all good. D- don't do that. People don't compare yourself <laughs> to the Beatles, but that's, you know, that same idea where of like, Hey, let's just go off the road and just make records. Like, cause, cause we were actually writing for an EP we were going to try to release during our last year as a band. And we just, we were so busy touring. It was the first time we, we just didn't have a ton of time to be at home and finish the songs and get in the studio. Yeah. Um, and we had like three or four songs pretty close to being done. Uh, and it never really came to fruition, but, um, Mojo put out two solo records and I think those ended up on there. Okay. Or at least a, a version of them, you know, probably a little different, but, um, yeah, you know, it just get to the point, man, where it's like, and for us, it was just financially not smart to stay on the road. You know, we, you know, we, we weren't necessarily like losing a ton of money, but we, we weren't doing better. We were, you know, the guarantees you're getting paid for shows or, or less and less each time. Mm-hmm. And it got to the point where it's like, okay, like a lot of people in the band have kids now. Like this is just, it's not making sense to be gone as long as we are when we're not bringing home as much as we used to, it, you know, it, it, it just, it, it was the smart decision just to kind of just stop. Yeah. Well, that didn't, uh, that didn't stop you as you know, you, you then after that joined another <laughs> very successful band. Me, you know, <laughs> so you, definitely not stopping me. Yeah. You joined uh, a band called demon hunter, which was, um, you know, quite, quite the shift, you know, in style, a little both bit musically of a and sonically. Yeah. So what led you to, to joining that band? What was that transition like? How much time was in between when you finished with Supertones and then you joined Demon Hunter? Um, it actually, uh, it actually overlapped. Um, okay. I actually recorded on my first Demon Hunter record. Well, I guess let me back up real quick. So Don and Ryan, who, uh, from Demon Hunter, uh, the brothers. Yeah. Um, I'm, I knew them for a few years before that because <clears throat> they both do amazing graphic design work. Yeah, yeah, go check them out. And uh, and they and they and they did two of the layouts for Supertones records. Right. And so yeah, I was either emailing or on the phone with them talking about changes or little thing details and stuff like that. And so I got to know them. Anytime we would be in Seattle and we go hang out at the label, I would hang out with those dudes. And so we were already kind of friends. Um, and this is kind of how the music industry works is like, you just, you make connections, not for the reason of trying to, to get a job one day or anything. You're just, you know, I'm a very social person. I've got a lot of friends I always have, and I I want that to be that way for the rest of my life. I never expect it to lead to a job or a a playing gig or something like that, but it, it, it it just has worked out that way, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's how a lot, that's how a lot of stuff happens. It's all word of mouth. You know, it's like, there's not like a, you know, an application you fill out online to go be in a band, you know, right. it's usually wor- word of mouth. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, um, I just, I, one day I got a phone call from, from Don and, uh, 
and he said, Hey, would you want to, uh, join demon hunter? I was like, huh? <laughs> I was like, and I told him, I guess it was after we broke up cause no, it was a bit before. Um, and I said, well, uh, sure. But you know, supertones are still going. We're in our final year or whatever. And, uh, yeah. And he was like, it doesn't matter where you live. Like, cause I was, I was, I told him like the, we're the band's ending soon and I'm moving, you know, to back to Nashville. He's like, it doesn't matter. He's like, we literally record one year and we tour the next year. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So in, I have to look back at some photos to figure it out, but I'm fairly certain I was still in the Supertones when I recorded on the first Demon Hunter record that I did called The Trip Day. Did a, did my first tour with Demon Hunter, which was a blast. But because Demon Hunter is a part time band, that was kind of my first taste of like, okay, like I have to get jobs in between this stuff. You know, if Demon Hunter is only going to tour for six weeks out of an entire year, like right. yeah, you can't make a you can't make a, a, a yearly living off of that. Yeah. Um, but at the time, you know, Dan and I, uh, one of the main reasons for moving back to Nashville is Dan from the Supertones and I started uh, our own studio. Uh, it went for a couple of years and didn't do very well, unfortunately. Um, Nashville's not a great place to open a studio. Hmm. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of them here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we also didn't know what we were doing that much, too. I think if I was, had the money to open one now, it'd be a little different. But um, but yeah, so yeah, so I went and recorded on, the, on my first Demon Hunter record and then did the tour and uh, kind of was doing the studio thing and then at this point, again, like I was talking about how you just make connections with other bands and stay in touch with people. I was already friends with the Reliant K guys at that point. Um, and by 08, I'd done two Demon Hunter records and I also started drum and bass teching for Reliant K uh, because Demon Hunter wasn't, was not full time. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's how that we were, yeah, I mean, well, we were already buddies because, you know, back in 2001, I mean, Reliant K was the opener for the Supertones on one of our tours. Well, I thought you were going to say they were the opener for Demon Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good, too. Um, no, so th- th- there was two different su- Supertones tours where we were the headliner, and they were the, they were one of the openers. And um, so, yeah, obviously, like, the tide shifted, and they, you know, Ska wasn't cool anymore, and, like, Reliant K had gotten really popular, and I was just on the road with them as a guitar tech and as their friend and just, you know, having a good time, and everything was cool. 
And then, uh, yeah, and then out of the blue one day, uh, Hoops, Matt Hoops called me and said, hey, do you want to audition on drums? We're trying out three people, and we want you to be one of them. And I said no at first. <laughs> I don't wow. know why I did. Hmm. I, I, I think, I, I don't know, I think because I was, uh, uh, there was a Demon Hunter tour coming up, and I didn't know how that was going to work, you know, and then, then I was like, wait, what am I thinking? So I called him back, and I was like, actually, you know what, I'll do it. I'll audition. And I'll figure I'll figure out the logistics later, you know, because um, I thought, you know, if I get this, it's probably kind of stupid of me to, to turn something a full time job down over a very part time job. Right. You know. Yeah. And, and I knew that the Demon Hunter guys would understand. Um, and it turns out that, you know, I called Don first and told him what was going on. I said, hey, audition. They want me to be in the band. It's full time. I mean, literally starting in like two weeks we're doing like a warm up show and then like we're doing a bunch of festivals and then going to warp tour. And, uh, and yeah, he was like, actually I'm doing the same thing because his graphic design company started taking off Oh yeah, and invisible creature. And he, he started getting bigger clients and he was so busy that, so long story short, really short story long, but, um, Don and I quit the band at the same time. And, uh, cause we both had other projects that, that were just busier yeah, you know, and, and I, I talked to Ryan Clark, and he—I mean, he was—he encouraged me to do it. He's like, "Dude, you need to go do that." So there was a little overlap where I—I I, I, so I—I I joined Reliant K before Warp Tour. We had like a month off or something, so I actually started the next tour with Demon Hunter, and I did the first like three weeks of it of like a five or six week tour. Um, and then the guy guitar teching for me, this guy Patrick, he took over for me afterwards, and he's still in the band. Oh, okay. Um, and he fits that band way more than I do. I mean, I'm I'm a slight metalhead, and I love metal, and I do a Metallica podcast. But he's that dude's metal, and he 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 was meant to be in Demon Hunter. Yeah, <laughs> over me. But dude, those were those were those were four really fun years, man, and really fun records to play on. Yeah. Well, what was that transition like playing? You know, but this point you'd be play mostly you know punk ska stuffs how did you transition your your style or playing to such a drastic difference like did that take a while to kind of figure out you know even just the picking and how your hands moved and the sounds and not really honestly because when i was younger before i got into like punk rock and reggae and ska i was fully immersed in heavy metal like metallica and anthrax and all these bands um so that's my early years of playing guitar were learning how to play metal. Not necessarily like super fast lead stuff, but a lot of the rhythm fast downstroke stuff. Yeah. And and even in the supertones, I mean, even when we play like the the more rock parts of songs, I would play downstrokes with my right hand as fast as possible and as much as I could. And so to go into Demon Hunter wasn't in, it wasn't any it was different obviously, but like as far as like adapting my playing, like I, I already I already played metal just for fun, you know, yeah. and had and had since I was super young. So, uh, so yeah, it, it wasn't, you know, the only difference was like energy wise on a tour like that. I mean, I, outside of being a drummer, like I don't think I've sweat more than when mm-hmm. I was playing in DM hundred, like super high energy shows, packed out clubs that are like 120 degrees and, um, just wringing your shirt out at the end of the night, like literally just, water pouring out of it um but yeah as far as playing goes no it, it wasn't that hard of a transition for me 
Yeah. What about, so you just mentioned the live playing. You know, again, that's a very drastic change in audience from, you know, ska and punk to, to heavy metal. How how was that kind of, you know, going out on stage and maybe expecting one thing that's like, oh, yeah, okay, and now I'm playing a totally different kind of music and, you know, maybe playing different venues to different types of people. and Yeah. I mean, there's obviously a different fan base, you know, uh, with the different styles of music. But honestly, the the energy wasn't that much different from the Supertones just because we put on such a high energy show. And whenever, you know, we had really good crowds, like they would go crazy and it was loud and they would sing the songs back to us really loud. And um, Demon Hunter, that was just more consistent, you know, because that was just kind of part of the genre, like people singing as loud as they can and stuff. But I mean, that, that stuff happened with ska music too. You yeah, know? that's um, true. Or if you look at, you know, artists like Dashboard Confessional, like Chris Caraba, I mean, he kind of helped popularize that like crowd singing thing you know, in the early 2000s, you know? Yeah, uh, definitely. And so that that energy was very similar, I think, for both bands, just just based on the, the energy of, of the shows we were putting on. Yeah, just more long-haired uh, headbanging instead of... <laughs> skanking it pretty much yeah yeah different different types of dancing skanking or slam dancing whatever yeah what would you say are some of your favorite memories of your time in demon hunter uh i mean obviously you know i'm always going to off the bat choose recording certain albums just because i love being in the studio so much yeah um but uh honestly i remember i remember playing um with demon hunter doing it was a show in orange county it was out in this canyon area kind of uh really close to where i used to live i think it was actually when they did um so you remember the cornerstone festival yeah yeah Uh, at one point they did a cornerstone florida and a cornerstone california right and this was cornerstone california wow i haven't thought about that in forever that just popped in my brain um and i remember doing that show and it was like a pretty good sized crowd and i had i just had a ton of friends there because it was kind of a hometown show for me uh, that or anytime we would play the Glass House, which is a venue in Pomona, yep. California. Yep. Been there a few times. Oh yeah, um, yeah. That that was always a real, real treat. Just because, I mean, we, I think I played there twice with Demon Hunter. We sold it out both times, and it was just like, it was like electricity in the room. You know, it was so much fun, man. And 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 having great openers on tours that I did, like Living Sacrifice opening one of them and stuff oh, like that. That's awesome. And, uh, yeah, I remember that. It was just so much fun, man. But um. Yeah, I mean, the li- the Demon Hunter live shows are always a good time, and I, I finally got to see a Demon Hunter live show just earlier this year, and they oh, did the, cool. their acoustic slash acoustic uh, slash electric tour. Yeah, and um, and they played down in Birmingham, Alabama, and so me and Bruce from Living Sacrifice, who's he lives here, we're friends, and and uh, him and I and, and his fiance at the time, and uh, we drove down to Birmingham, watched the show. It was really fun to watch them play because I'd never really seen them play outside of outside of uh, being on stage yeah did you have to get different gear like different guitars and pedals and all that kind of thing or yes yeah that was that that was a big difference um because demon hunter played everything in drop tuning uh so at the time they had a, a guitar deal with the, the company washburn okay and they made these custom baritone guitars for the band and um and so yeah i had i had to get these baritones that had longer scale length neck uh, everything, pretty much everything, with the exception of a few songs, I think we did live. We played in drop B, which is pretty low. Um, but yeah, yeah, I still have one of them here in my studio um, that I've used on the last tour I did with them. That I, I 
it's not the it's a decently cool looking guitar but uh it's the it's the finish that i didn't ask for i remember oh shoot <laughs> i was trying to get a custom guitar made and they're like yeah no problem man and so i was like i want this like wine red that you can see the wood grain i was sending them examples and then they sent it to me and it was like paper white with like oh, black bindings brutal. i'm like this is not at all what I asked for, but the tour starts in like a week. I have to right. use it, so I ended up using it, and I still have it. But um, yeah, so that that was that was a big difference. Um, I think at the time they had a, a, a deal with PV amps, and so uh, I think one tour I did at fifty one fifty. Other one I did uh, they used to have a head called the Penta, which is kind of like their version of a Marshall, and uh, they sounded great for metal man. They sounded awesome, and uh, I didn't have a lot of crazy pedal stuff going on because it was pretty much just like full board you know overdrive distortion yeah or like a couple kind of clean parts and usually i would just use my volume pedal to clean it up and pull it back a little bit yeah well that's awesome it's just cool hearing those those different transitions and i mean amazing that (laughs) you could adapt to that and it's like oh yeah i can play you know totally different gear totally different style and yeah you know but i you know i guess with an instrument if you know it really well you know you just kind of adjust the playing a bit you know different strings different setup but I guess it's still right. It's still the same, you know, whether it's scales or, you know, yeah. different rhythms and patterns. So, I think for me too, a lot of it has to do with the fact that I not only discovered different types of music on my own, but my dad raised me on so many different types of music. So it's like I didn't grow up like just listening to metal, and that's all I listened to, you know. Right. Um, yeah, I think earlier I sent you like my top three influential records you yeah to, yeah to, we'll, we'll get to that kind of at the end there and they're yeah okay but yeah they're they're, they're kind of across the board you know and uh i think taste and music combined with being a multi-instrumentalist it, it makes it easy for me to adapt into different scenarios um you know even now i mean i i don't, I don't do it as much as i want i wish i could but you know i, I do a fair amount of uh, just session work in nashville uh mostly at my friend's studio named Paul, Paul Moak. And, uh, you know, like literally Monday and Tuesday of this week, I was playing on this kind of Christian worship, but super cool and vibey kind of thing. It wasn't, I expected it to be kind of cheesy to be honest. Um, but it was not. And the girl was awesome. Her story was cool. She's a great singer, but like I, and I played bass on the session. That's what Paul asked me to do. And I came in and I've just learned how to adapt. I mean, that's kind of what session musicians do. And, you know, you have to learn how to walk into a scenario like where you literally have not heard the song in your life and you learn it real quick and you start recording, you know? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so that's what I've done over the years, you know, just being a fan of so many kinds of music and I, I wanted to learn all of them, you know, and not for not for the reason of like joining a metal band one day or whatever. I just love that music and I was like, this song's great. I want to learn it on guitar. So I just... I think I naturally just with love of music learned how to play different types of music and I just naturally learned how to adapt. I never set out to do it. It just kind of happened. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously you have, you know, skill and talent that comes with that and, you know, I'm sure lots of that just kind of comes easy to you. But, I mean, you've also put in a lot of time and, you know, you've done so much writing and so that's that's all <laughs> part of it too, right? It's not like yeah. it just, I mean, there is natural talent, but it also takes a lot of time and effort and of course. And yeah, so. for sure. I, I, I mean, I definitely think I got, I got the gene from my dad and like, you know, there, there, there are a fair amount of musicians in my family. Like I mentioned my cousin who worked for tooth and nail. He was in a band called Havelina, um, back in the day on tooth and nail. And he, you know, he took a break from music for a long time, but he still does it now. He's in, he's in this awesome band. You should check out called war girl. Cool. 
Yeah. Uh, they're this rad female fronted band from from Long Beach, California, and uh, yeah, my so my, yeah my cousin Matt who was in Havelina, uh, uh, he's in that band now, and they're awesome. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. Yeah, so you, you mentioned uh, a bit before about Reliant K, kind of a bit of that crossover. So I feel like at this point, your resume just says, I only join prominent bands. And, uh, <laughs> it wasn't on purpose, man. <laughs> it, literally, at no point have, did, I, did I seek any of it out. Like, it's just, again, like, you just, you know, you, if you're in music and, you know, playing in bands, whether it's local or, or national, whatever, I think an important thing to do, and I think this is just part of my personality, um, is you just, you know, you maintain relationships, Yeah, you know, um, become friends with people on the road. And I mean, I, I mean, I'm still like, I don't talk to him every day, but like I can still reach out to any of the dudes from Goaty Hook and say, Hey, what's up? How you doing? And it's, and it's great. You know, um, I just, I've always tried to maintain relationships as best as, as best I could. And of course, you know, you, you grow apart because people get older, they have families and move to different states and stuff like that and whatever. But uh, that's just kind of always what I've done, you know, and just I think that's just natural with just, I don't know, that's my personality, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I never I never sought out like I need to join an established band. <laughs> yeah, no, that was more just kind of poking fun. I mean, that's that's awesome for you, right? Like you've yeah. put in so much time, like it makes sense you would join another band that you know, was already at a place where they could just bring in a guy like you that had lots of, you know, abilities and you can just kind of plug in right away instead of needing, you know, like a bunch of practice or getting used yeah. to the band or whatever. And I mean, dude, a lot of it's right place, right time. You know, I mean, I, I just happened, you know, Supertones broke up and moved back to Nashville. Demon Hunter was part time. You know, I needed to pay my bills because my studio wasn't doing well. So I went and teched for Reliant K because we were friends. It was just, I was just in the right place, right time when Dave decided to quit the band, you know? Hmm. Um, <clears throat> and so it just, it worked out. How many times can I push it aside? Is it time I befriended all the ghosts of all the things that haunt me most? So they leave me alone, move on with my life. Certain the steps are left and right don't fight the direction of upright. I'd rather forget and not slow down and gather regret for the things I can't change now. I become what I can't accept, resurrect the same from within the wretch. Yeah, so not only did you kind of shift back to, you know, punk, pop punk, but you were you went back to drumming. So how did you kind of, you know, I, I know I've kind of asked this about adjusting to it and, you know, you make it sound like it was pretty natural. But that's still, you know, that was a number of years between drumming for the Dingies and then mm -hmm. now drumming for Reliant K. You know, how was that yeah. coming in, you know? having to learn you know quite a, they had you know a good handful of albums by that point and right yeah. and uh you know well i was very familiar with their music just because we toured together and like you know just being their friend like i i especially loved you know the two lefts record and the mm -hmm record yeah for sure um and what's funny is before i joined the band i actually played on the part of five score five score and seven years ago okay i love that album um yeah, so if you listen to the the last song Deathbed. Yeah. There's the whole there's the whole main song happens and then there's the part where John Foreman from Switchfoot sings. 
any drums after that is me. Okay. Because oh, awesome. they, they, they thought the song was done, and then I got a call from, I think, Matt Hoops or Mark Townsend maybe, saying, hey, we want to add this drum part on the end, but we're on the road. They were, they were already doing some shows or touring or something. And so I went down to Mark's studio with my drums, and I recorded the end of that song, and that's what's on the record. Yeah, <laughs> so that's awesome. I played on a record before I was in the band. Yeah. Did that seem like a, a refreshing change, going back to drums? Um... A bit, yeah, a bit. I mean, I never really stopped playing. Uh, I would always play in like my downtime, and right, um, you know, even in, in the supertones. I mean, most of our demos, I was playing drums because our drummer lived in California. Yeah, that's um, fair. I'd either use a really cheesy drum machine, or I would just mic up two mics on my kit back then. So I was still playing drums a lot, just at home, you know. So I, I wouldn't lose my chops or whatever. Uh, <clears throat> so I was kind of ready to go right when they asked me to audition. So they gave me a couple songs like specifically to learn and i went and played them and i actually in the middle of one of the songs totally dropped a stick like just bonehead move yeah oh classic <laughs> so i was kind of nervous <laughs> i was like i didn't think i was going to be able to, to to be in a band again that, that you know did well like the supertones you know and then when, so when that happened i was kind of like oh man this could be again this could be another five or six years of my life yeah um <clears throat> And so, yeah, uh, I didn't think Audition went that great, but they ended up choosing me, so mm. yay. <laughs> yeah, so that album that you joined in on, it's called Forget and Not Slow Down, that kind of sees the band, you know, kind of continuing to shift their sound from, you know, the pop punk to a bit more of a rock, kind of indie rock feel. Did you have any part in the writing on this album? How did that, you know, what was that like coming in, you know, knowing their discography and was that a conscious kind of shift for them or was that just a, a natural progression for them? Um, well, technically, uh, technically I was on recording before that, uh, the bird and the B sides. Right. Oh yeah, that's right. So that, the whole first half of that kind of collection is, was all new songs. Okay. So that was my first like intro into the band. Um, <clears throat> but for forget out slow down, uh, I mean, Tyson is the primary songwriter on that band. There's, there's no debating that, you know, <clears throat> I would say he's like 90% the writer maybe 95 percent yeah um <clears throat> so again back to my you know lessons i learned from steve kravak you know i kind of just come in and fill in the gaps of what he's doing it's like finding the right drum beat to go with his vocal part or with hoops's guitar part or whatever and um i guess if if anything on that record maybe i helped more with like some arrangement stuff um some different feel stuff you know hey on this I'm trying to think of a song off the top of my head. Like, okay, uh, there's a song there called Sahara. And the whole bridge section was supposed to be like kind of halftime breakdown kind of feel. And when we were rehearsing it one day uh, at a rehearsal studio in Nashville, I went even, I basically went like quarter time. I went half of halftime yeah. <laughs> to where it was like really slow. And all of a sudden it just felt good. And that became this amazing part live and kids would go crazy and, and it was just this little thing that I did. I, you know, I didn't consider what, you know, it would sound like live or anything or how people would react to it. But so I would do little things like that and just come up with different suggestions. And, um, Tyson was a fun guy to, to write drum parts to, because even though I, again, I play very, very simple and kind of tamed, um, you know, there's a lot of times where like my kick drum pattern would be his vocal part, you know? Okay. Um, rather than just doing a doom, God, doom, doom, God, right. doom, God, doom, the whole time, you know, I would change the kick drum part to match his vocal. Um, like there's one on uh, the Bird and the B-Sides called, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, the Lining is Silver. 
<clears throat> and uh, and the the verse, um, the, the, my kick drum is basically just emulating what Matt's singing. Mm, let's go back so and to me, to that. yeah. So to me, it kind of just gave it like a different a different feel rather than just doing the same straight drum beat all the time, you know. And those are little simple changes that I kind of learned from Steve Kravak back, you know, <clears throat> fifteen years before that. You yeah. Know? Um. But yeah, man, no, it, it was it was super fun. So I, I wasn't like a big writer in the band, you know, which was a little different for me because I'm used to the supertones where you know me and Matt wrote pretty much everything. Um, <clears throat> but I also went into it Reliant K, you know, respecting what they have already established for, for sure, some, yeah. you know, for f- at that point four or five records. Yeah. Um, you know, so I wasn't about to come in there and you know to basically just be like, well, I'm writing this and that, you know. And it's like, yeah, I'm, yeah. Hey, I'm I'm entering their world now, you know, so I need to be respectful of that and kind of find my place, you know, and I found it pretty quick and, and that's kind of what happened. Yeah. Were they still touring full time when this album came out? Like what did that album cycle bring for the band? For which one? For Get Nestle Down? Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. We were, we were pretty constantly touring until uh, in 2012 was probably the, the last year it was last year I fully toured with them, but uh, I think that was probably our lightest year of touring. Okay. I mean, the first year I joined the band, I mean, we did a bunch of fly date shows, and then we did eight weeks of warp tour. Then we did a full like eight week fall tour. Yeah, we were usually almost every year it was usually a big fall tour, a big spring tour, and then summer festivals unless we were doing a warp tour. Right. Do you remember what some of those tours were? Like, what would be some of the standout ones from then? I mean, um, obviously, Warp Tour would have been a would have been an awesome one. Had you ever done Warp Tour before with any other band? No, that, okay. No, first, my first time was '08 with 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 the band, and I, we did it again in 2011. Uh, warp Tour is super fun. I, I had a ton of friends in other bands that were just like texting me, like, "Dude, you're gonna hate it. It's so hot every day. It's <laughs> yeah. just noisy every day. You're sweaty." you only play for 30 minutes. So the rest of the day is super boring. And I was just like, Oh crap, this is, I'm not looking forward to this. And literally by the first end of the first day, I was like, this is awesome. I loved it. I had a blast because again, I'm like Mr. Social butterfly. I'm like walking around meeting other bands and you know, we were on a stage that would kind of be split in half with another stage. And so, you know, we're meeting all the bands that are playing the same stage as us and, you know, just becoming friends with people. And, um, you know, and there's, dude, there's even people, from Warp Tour in 08 that I'm still friends with just because, you know, what else am I going to do? I'm in the middle of a yeah. parking lot for, you know, the next 24 hours. Like, I need, to, I need to, you know, sometimes you need a break from your own tour bus so you go hang out in someone else's bus. And and so, yeah, I, I, had, a, I had a great time on Warp Tour, you know. Um, there was days that were hot and miserable for sure, like playing like 108 degree weather outdoors. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <clears throat> with the sun on you, it's it's awful. But, uh no, I had a great time doing that. That was those were fun tours, and then um, I'd say one of the most fun. Uh, anytime that House of Heroes was out with us was always a good time. Oh yeah, they were a cool band, a great band. Um, love those dudes. Still friends with those guys today, and uh, <clears throat> them or Sherwood. Sherwood. Oh, uh, yeah. Nate Nate Henry's a close friend of mine. Up until about, I guess it's been about a year and a half. Uh, he was literally my neighbor. Lived three houses down from me. Oh, cool. Um, he moved to Nashville probably almost 10 years ago and, uh, yeah, bought a house on my street. <laughs> and so we, we've, we've gotten really close over the years. And so, yeah, me and Nate making fire pits all the time, talking about conspiracy theories and Bigfoot and stuff. It was super nice. fun. <laughs> but yeah. 
Yeah, that's cool. So you've like, I mean, at this point again, you've you're joining bands that are, you know, they already have lots of albums out, whether it was Supertones or Demon Hunter or Reliant K. How do you approach playing other people's songs? Like, even especially I know guitar, you kind of have to stick to it a bit more, but with drums. You know, would you just yeah. play the parts that were already there, or did you feel kind of you had the freedom to to play around a bit, or what was that like? Uh, it always it always started like <clears throat> so, like Dave Douglas's drum parts, for instance. I mean, <clears throat> I love Dave to death. We were already friends back then. He called me when I joined the band. Was so happy for me, and I'm still friends with Dave. He's he's one of the sweetest dudes in the world. Yeah, right on. Um, but yeah, going into his parts, like. You know, of course, right off the bat, I'm playing them pretty much verbatim what he's doing, you know. And then once you get comfortable enough with the songs, you can kind of change up a few things. But I never changed like key parts, you know. If there was like a specific drum part that was crucial to the song, like, okay, that's part of the whole feel of this section of the song, like, I wouldn't change that, you yeah. know. Um, there's like, uh, I'm trying to think of a specific one of his, of, for his drumming. Uh, so, like, the first track off of mm-hmm, the uh, one I'm waiting for. Oh, yeah. That, there's that whole drum intro, right? The, da, 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 yeah. Da, 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 that whole thing. I'm not going to change that. Yeah. I mean, that's, why, of course. you know what I mean? That's like, that's like the first thing you hear in the song. And, um, you know, if anything, I'd be changing just little drum fills and stuff, you know? Um, but yeah, the main heart and soul of, of whatever drum parts there were, like I would, I would, you know, do those justice and honor those and just change up little inflections here and there, little drum fills or just little accents on things. And, stuff like that you know um plus dave wrote awesome drum parts there was yeah, so much fun was, to play yeah, he was a, great, he was a drummer. great drummer awesome drummer and we and we you know like i said like we, we hung out so many times over the years and um he just had such good drum parts to play like you know especially in the middle of a show when you're just full of adrenaline and like they'd, every part just seems effortless because you're you know blood's flowing and stuff i always love playing his drum parts yeah yeah, I, I always loved watching. Um, yeah, I did see them. Saw them at uh, Cornerstone 2002. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was the only time I saw them live. But yeah, I just I always loved his style and you know even sometimes the way he set up his symbols. And I remember being yeah, sad totally. hearing that uh, that he wasn't with the band anymore. But you know his, his I felt like his style really um, really complemented kind of the more kind of punk albums. Um, whereas, I mean, yeah. I'm sure it would have been fine later on too, but I don't know, just kind of a random thought there. But For sure, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. we're kind of moving on here a bit. I just want to briefly touch on, on your time in, in Kings of Leon. Um, I really <laughs> That's don't a know whole about, different, a whole different world. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I really don't know a whole lot about that band, but I'm always intrigued yeah. and interested when I see kind of, you know, seeing people getting to join bigger bands. You know, there's a few a few other guys where that's happened. And um, are you familiar right. with the uh, the band City in Color? Uh, I, I've heard of the band, yes. Okay, so it's like a guy from that band, Alexis on Fire, another Canadian band. And so he started okay. this whole, you know, kind of acoustic thing. And, um, you know, he's a huge artist now, like especially in Canada. And so, but yeah. a guy that, uh, that used to play awesome. in a hardcore band with a band I was in, he's now playing... Um, you know, kind of auxiliary instruments with him or steel guitar, and and it's just always cool. cool to see. Um, you know, and Dallas Green, who who is City in Color, you know, he comes from from that punk background too. But mm-hmm. now that he's really kind of exploring the mainstream, and you know, he then he had that side project with Pink. I don't know if you remember that. Um, I think it was called like She and Him or something, or maybe that's a another one. But some, uh, I think something. She and Him is uh, 
Isn't that Zoe Deschanel's? Okay, yes, yeah, it's something something similar to that. You know, it's the yeah, two yeah, words, sure. but you know, they played on Jimmy Kimmel and the Ellen Show, awesome. and and my buddies there, you know, playing in the background. So it's it's just yeah, always man. cool to that stuff happens <laughs> when they get those opportunities. So I'm assuming that was kind of you know you started like teching for them, or just an opportunity yeah. came up, or yeah, I mean it, it was it was very similar to like uh, the Reliant K thing. I was kind of already there. And, uh, and just to clarify, I, I, I was never in, th- this is, this is a misconception sometimes with, with, with bigger bands like that. Right. Uh, uh it, it, for, it, for the most part, it's just those four dudes, you yeah. know, three yeah, brothers sure. and, and their cousin. If there's anybody else on stage, like they're just, you're, you're, it's, you're, it's business. You're, you're a hired gun. Uh, you know, you're not in the band, you're not writing, you're not recording. You're literally there just to play parts live and that's it. You yeah. know what I mean? No more, no less. Um, and that's and that's the role, you know. And that's that's what I've kind of been doing since then, or at least trying to. You know, it's it's a tough business, like I said earlier. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, after Reliant K, like I was, I had done a couple teching tours. You know, I went out and teched for that band Cold War Kids. Uh, I was out with them for a few months, and then uh, a buddy of mine was the auxiliary musician for Kings of Leon that I'd known for a long time. This guy Chris Coleman, and. Uh, I hit him up just asking, Hey man, keep your ear open. I'm looking for, you know, an artist to play for auxiliary, whatever. And he was like, actually, if, if you're into teching, like I need a tech. And I was like, okay. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it at first, but cause I mean, my heart's in playing, you know, I've yeah. never really been a tech other than teching for Reliant K a little bit, but I know how to tech cause I always worked on my own guitars and stuff. But, uh, yeah. And so I just decided, you know what, screw it. Like this isn't what I want to do for a living, but they're a huge band. And I'll get to see the literally see the world like they play in Europe and UK and all over the world all the time. And so uh, I just, yeah, I decided to do it. And they needed a, a tech on very short notice. And three days after I got the phone call, I was, I'm sorry, three days after I got home from being gone for six weeks with Cold War kids, three days later, I was on a flight to Germany. Wow. To go tech for Kings of Leon, like sight unseen, hadn't met anybody in the band. I didn't know anybody but the one dude I was teching for. So mm-hmm. it was very, it was that's one of those things you know about switching jobs so much in a matter of a year. I mean, in that same year in January I was out teching for John Foreman from Switchfoot and then for the next couple months I was teching for Cold War Kids and then 3 days after that I'm in Germany teching for Kings Leon, you know. It's like and you know starting a whole new job where you're getting to know new people like I I mean it, I felt like the total loner like i walked in i was just like i don't know anybody here and there's yeah. this massive massive operation happening and like i mean they're only playing arenas i mean this is bigger than anything i've ever dealt with you know so it was a huge learning curve and i got thrown straight in the deep end of the pool um but it worked out great and then fast forward like probably about a year and a half and uh chris who i was teching for the auxiliary player he said hey i'm, I'm gonna be getting off the road my wife and I are pregnant with our first kid. We're going to start a family, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to travel anymore. Um, and so he recommended to the guys in Kings, hey, you know, and I, I already kind of knew the dudes at this point and stuff like that. And he's like, hey, you should have Ethan do it. You know, he's a multi-instrumentalist. He can cover all the parts, no problem, blah, blah, blah. And so I had, uh, I basically rehearsed all the songs in hotel rooms while we were on tour. And he, mm-hmm. he left, he left basically, in the middle of a tour there was a, a week break and he left during that week and i pretty much had 
only time in my hotel rooms <laughs> to learn. And I kind of knew all the songs anyways, just because I'm, I'm listening to them every single night as a tech, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm watching, you know, Chris play all the parts. So, I mean, it, it wasn't hard to figure out. But it's also Kings of Leon. It's like this massive band. And so, yeah, I, so I literally started in the middle of a tour. And I didn't know I was playing the first show I did until the day of. Wow. Because um, they decided they wanted me to play a show with Crystal there so he could kind of like tell the guys, yeah, he did great. Right. You're in good hands kind of thing, I guess. So, yeah, it was literally like one day, I think it was in Charlotte. I, uh, I, I had, you know, set up all the, the stuff for Chris and the rest of the guy, all the other techs are set up all their stuff. And the band comes in to sound check and, um, they finish. they're almost, they're about to start sound checking. I'm sorry. And uh, Nathan, the drummer walks over. He said, Hey, uh, how you feeling about, about the songs? And I was like, Oh man, feeling pretty good, man. I think I got them all down, you know, been rehearsing a bunch. He goes, cool. You're playing tonight. <laughs> That's how I found out. Yeah. Wow. And so I was like, okay. And so he's like, all right, get up, get up there. Let's, let's sound check a couple songs. Sound checked him. All the guys are like, cool, man. Sounds great. See you tonight. And I was like, okay. And so, you know, I, and then it, that was the first time in a long time, very long time that I was a little bit nervous. Yeah, I was going to ask um, kind of, you know, I mean, you've adapted to a lot of different circumstances and yeah. and styles and stuff, but this is, you know, it's a whole different world, like you said, you know, of, of yeah, the totally. crew that's working with them, the people that are coming, the venues. and. Mm-hmm. Well, the good, you know, the, the good part of this, of that day was at this point, I've already gotten really close to the other crew guys, um, especially uh, a dude named Nacho, who is, he's also the cousin of all the guys in the band and he's like their main tech, been there since day one kind of thing. And uh, him and, and Jay, the old bass tech, and a couple of the people I was very close to at this point and hanging with every day. So I had like this cheering squad behind me, you know. <laughs> they were yeah, like, dude, helps. You're, you're playing tonight, like you're, you're going to kill it. I, I think it was just, really it was just the size of the band. that, And it, and it was the biggest thing that I'd ever, ever done. And I, I, I was kind of surprised I was a little nervous because I hadn't been that, that kind of nervous since... I mean, only other time I was that nervous that I could remember at the time was when Reliant K got to play the Tonight Show, and I was super nervous about that. Oh, right on. But other than that, like I, I just got, you know, I got used to it, and you, you know, you just don't get nervous anymore. <laughs> it just goes away, I guess. Yeah. But but yeah, so it came back, and um, it, what's funny uh, about this entire conversation is I remember starting the, starting the set uh, that night in Charlotte. And uh, I had a friend that was at the show uh, named Dusty Redman, who played in the Almost. And, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, beloved. But um, uh, him and his wife came to the show. And I remember standing on stage playing these parts. And I'm kind of in the back next to the drummer. I'm not like, again, I'm an right. auxiliary guy. Yeah, yeah. No one no one gives a crap who I am at yeah. all. And it, and that was great about that job, was that nobody cared about me. I could literally walk into the crowd after the show, and nobody would even bat an eye to me, because I'm not in Kings of Leon. Um but I remember, wa- I remember in sometime in the middle of the set, I remember kind of looking out at the crowd thinking, like, this is awesome. And one of the first thoughts that popped in my head, I, I thought to myself, man, I used to be in the dingies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you you didn't wear a dingy re- shirt for any of the shows? Just to I see definitely it. did not. <laughs> <laughs> it was just this, like, weird, uh, everything kind of came rushing back. Like, you know, it's almost like, you know the past version of, you know, your, your life flashing before your eyes kind of thing. Right. Everything in my past just kind of, kind of flew through my head as I was up there doing that thinking like, man, how did I, 
how on earth did I get here? You know? And again, it all, it all goes back to just relationships. I mean, that's literally how I've gotten almost every opportunity I've done. It's just, you know, someone who needs something or, you know, someone who knows someone that needs a musician or whatever. And that's how every, even last year I did a tour with that band need to breathe as an auxiliary musician. Yeah. Not, not in the band. I'm just an ox guy on stage, just playing a couple different instruments. And that was another, you know, another word of mouth thing. Friend, friend of a friend was like, Hey, I know a guy looking to get on the road and they needed an auxiliary guy for this three leg tour. I was like, and I got on the road with them and it was awesome, you know? Yeah, man, that's really cool. Thanks for sharing that. I I love hearing, you know, it's such a, such a drastic shift, but it it just comes (laughs) with really cool experiences and, and, you know, just goes to show you, you know, you put your heart into it, you work hard and you're willing to kind of do what it takes. And, and so, yeah, man. And and that's, and, and that's in any profession too. I mean, if you're a, you know, if you're a nurse and, you know, things aren't working out at this hospital you're working you're working at but you still have a passion for nursing guess what you're gonna go find another hospital you know yeah. same thing with you know uh, you're a lawyer and same thing with a law firm or whatever you know it, it's in any profession if you have a true passion for it and you feel like that's your calling and that's what you should be doing you know you're gonna keep doing it no matter what obstacle gets in the way yeah yeah for sure Sweet. Well, the last project I want to touch on is uh, is your own um, your own solo work. Um, oh, the so biggest for, one. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is. I mean, that's what's cool about this is you can go play in a big band like this. But like you said, lots. You know, you're super creative. You got all these ideas. Like, you're not going to wait to put those into maybe you know a certain band you're waiting to join or whatever. Like, you're just going to keep doing it. And so, yeah. yeah I wanted to talk about the last album you put out, uh, "Let It Burn," in 2018. I was really excited when I saw that you were, you know, doing a fun fundraising initiative for this album. And, um, I mean, I've listened to this yeah. album a ton since and I love it. Oh, cool. I, I think it's really uniquely you. And I think it's a great fit for your, for your style musically. Um, oh, so thanks, what, were, what were some of the main kind of inspirations for this album and, and why this style specifically? Uh, it wasn't like a, a, you know, a rehash the past. Let's do a sky reggae kind of record. Because um, because in my mind it's 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 nothing like the supertones. Even, yeah, for you know? sure. It's, yeah. it's not like a. I, I mean, I definitely drew all my influences from like old school ska and reggae, even though I kind of modernized it in my own way, I guess. But you know, I mean, there's hardly any distorted guitars on the record or overdrawn yeah. guitars. You know, maybe on a couple little parts, but um, I just I was just going for vibe on it. You know, I wanted you know Paul Moak, who I you know and I do a lot of session work with. 
he did all the keys and I did it at his studio he produced it and stuff but he did all the keys on it minus one song and I played all the drums bass guitar and percussion and what else did I play melodica um, but uh, yeah man it was just I don't know I knew that it, I, I started writing a lot of those songs as like punk rock songs because <laughs> no matter what the songs I write start on an, usually on an acoustic guitar or an electric guitar and like not plugged in just sitting in a hotel room or at home yeah and they kind of start as like, you know, I'm just kind of strumming and singing melodies and stuff like that. And then I had one or two that I just, for fun one day, I was when I was on tour, I uh, opened up Logic and like programmed the drum beat and I started playing it like a reggae song. I'm like, man, that feels really good. Mm. I haven't I haven't really written that kind of stuff in a long time. And it just kind of, I don't know, it just felt right. And it was literally that moment that I was like, I'm just going to make a reggae record, you know, with a, maybe a couple like old school traditional kind of ska songs on it and that was kind of what i set out to do and originally it was going to be an ep because that's i'd only put out eps before that i put out three eps prior yeah. to that and um and then paul moak you know my producer for that record he encouraged me just to keep writing he's like dude there's no time frame just keep writing let's make a full length and i was like okay he's like how how, how are you gonna how are we gonna pay for this and i was like i have no idea <laughs> you know and so uh i started talking to a few friends that uh you know, that have done crowdfunding things, you know, through Kickstarter. And, uh, I actually had a, uh, actually started it with pledge music. Okay. Um, which if you've heard anything about what happened to pledge music in the last couple of years, it's freaking terrible. Uh Oh, the the owners of pledge music or the, I think I can't remember if it was two guys or maybe one, uh, just basically just took people for a lot of money Wow. and pledge music is no more. But, uh, I was uh, I did the whole sign up process and uh, originally set my goal at like I think I put I think I put five thousand dollars and I knew that wasn't wasn't going to be enough but I was hoping I'd go over it yeah and I got an email back from the people at Pledge saying hey based off of your social media BS you know all your numbers uh, we feel like your goal is too high and so they recommended three thousand and so then I wow right so this is get get this so i i redid everything i alter you know my my goal amount and i put it at 3000 which was their recommendation i resubmit everything i get an email back 2 weeks later i had to email them and say hey i still haven't gotten approved based on your recommendations what's up and they wrote me back and said oh we're sorry we're not going to approve you cuz we don't feel that uh, you can benefit us basically. It was That's this crazy. weird thing. So, so I basically got denied, and it, oh. and, and I spent about a total of three weeks like working on this stuff and getting the pledge music thing just right and and all that for them just to say like, eh, we don't think that uh, you would do well on pledge music, yeah. even though even though they recommended half the information that I put in there. It was so ridiculous, and I and honestly, man, I was like. I was really discouraged. I was like, this sucks. Like, you know, I just felt like, well, shoot, what am I going to do? You know? And so, uh, so then I ended up talking to, uh, to Nate Henry from, from Sherwood, who at the time was my neighbor. And, uh, yeah, sitting around a fire pit one night and, and he had already done a couple of Kickstarters, uh, for a couple of different projects. And so I just talked to him, got his, his advice. And he was like, man, Kickstarter is pretty straightforward, man. You just set an amount. If you don't hit it, you don't get the money. If you go over, then great. And so uh, I decided to uh, to aim high and uh, put it at seven thousand dollars, and then I think I ended up getting up to almost eleven thousand. Yeah, that's awesome. Which blew me away. But I, like, I 
I mean, at this point, you know, this is, you know, 2018 at this point, you know, I'm four about four years out of Reliant K and I've just been on the road with Kings of Leon. So in my mind, I'm thinking like, no, I hope I make this goal. Maybe, you know, um, but I'm thinking like, I don't know if people really remember me now, you know, not that, not, not that I was this like popular musician, but you yeah, know, but you've like, been around forever. I think, I think you have lots of people like myself sure. that have grown with you, you know, like, sure. I just, I guess I didn't see it that way. I was just kind of like, I'm just like a normal dude now trying to make a record. You know, I, I didn't, you know, really consider how many years I've been doing this total. I just kind of thought like, hopefully, you know, I can help fund this record. And I was, and I hit the goal in like, in like, less than 24 hours yeah, or no sorry less, like less than 48 48 hours yeah and i just i couldn't believe it and then and then it slowly grew from there i th- i can't remember how long i said it for like i don't know two weeks or something three weeks uh but yeah man so uh, yeah that happened and then i was able to you know i could have recorded it at home it would have sounded good but i knew i wanted to work at my buddy paul's studio which you know if anyone follows me on instagram you'll occasionally see photos from that studio and it's just yeah. the most am- amazing place um yeah. I wish I could record there every single day, you know, but, uh, and it worked out great. You know, I had a, a, a bunch of friends come in and do little guest things on the record. And, um, it was just a blast, man. Cause it was just me and Paul, his, his engineer and his assistant. And, and that was it, you know, and then friends would stop by like, but it was mainly, you know, me just recording everything. And then Paul would add keys. And then, uh, towards the end, I, um, I had, uh, horn players come in, which, you know, Dan and Brett from the Supertones played on it. Yeah. That's uh, awesome. and, and then Liam, who is also one of the auxiliary guys for Kings of Leon, he played sax on it. So oh, it was just, rad. you know, again, back to relationships, man. Yeah. You just, you maintain them, you call in favors and people help you out, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, I mean, it turned out so good. It's a great sounding record. It's, you know, an album that you can kind of put on, whether it's in the background, you're, you know, cleaning the house or something, or I, I love listening to it while I'm driving. Like it's, cool. it's a really cool driving album. You know, maybe if you've been, you know, driving for five, six hours and you just kind of need something to kind of just keep you going. And right. Yeah. yeah like it, it's super catchy, um, but it's yeah, it's just got this vibe to it where, you know, whether you're like, hanging around by a fire or, or whatever it is. So if cool. for people that, Thanks, that haven't haven't heard it, please go check it out. It's it's a really quality album, especially if you're fans of any of um, Ethan's previous work. So go yeah, go and do it's that. On all the, uh, it's on all the streaming platforms and Actually, if uh, if I were to plug anywhere to go get it, if you if you want to stream it on Spotify, that's fine. But uh, if you want to actually like download it, uh, I always recommend Bandcamp because, uh, and I've got a ton of other stuff on there too, like yeah. my other EPs, random cover songs, whatever. But uh, everything on my Bandcamp page is uh, name your price. So yeah, perfect. Someone can grab my record for a dollar or for twenty, whatever, whatever you want, you know. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Well, I don't want to take up much more of your time here. This is uh, it's been a while, but um, I just wanted to end <laughs> Sorry, by I can talk. <laughs> oh no, I I I love it. I'm I'm all about this. So, um, yeah, I had asked you to um, to just briefly share about three albums that were really influential on you. I I love hearing this, and I know other listeners love hearing kind of what influences you know the mm-hmm. musician that that you love, and so. Um, yeah, why don't you just share some of those um, those albums and maybe just something briefly about it, why it has maybe stood the test of time or why it keeps you coming back or kind of how it shaped you as a musician. Yeah. Shoot, well, uh, I, I, I emailed them to you in no particular order, but uh, um, 
or was I even supposed to send those to you, or is this just for you? <laughs> you wanted me to well, have it prepared. Yeah, I was for just asking you for this. So that, that's fine. You send it to me, but yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I got confused. Sorry. Uh, yeah. So in no particular order, uh, the Clash, London Calling. That was a record that I, uh, a band that I, I kind of discovered through a friend in high school, early high school, and uh, I'd already, you know, like, gotten into, like, more modern punk rock bands like Rancid and Green Day and MXPX and stuff, but uh, I never really went back in time and started, you know, discovering, you know, bands that they were influenced by and what bands that band was influenced by, because to me, that's one of the best ways to discover new music is find your favorite band and, and find out who they're influenced by and go back in time and, and find the root of why your your favorite band exists, you know? Right. Um, but yeah, there was just something special about London Calling. Um, it's, I mean, arguably their, their most well-known record. Um, and there's just so many styles of music on it. I mean, there's, you know, there's ska songs, there's reggae songs, there's punk songs, there's somewhat dancey kind of song. It's just a, a very eclectic record. Um, and I encourage anybody who's into really any kind of music. I mean, you'll probably know a couple of songs from the record, but uh, yeah. it's such a fantastic album. Um, and the Clashes—I mean, they're still one of my favorite. They're, they're them and Metallica are my two favorite bands of all time. Mm, cool. um, and then uh, speaking of Metallica, uh, Master of Puppets. <laughs> album um cliff burton's last record uh and that's it's a it's a heavy metal masterpiece um fun fact it is the only uh thrash metal album that is in the library of congress oh wow that's cool um <laughs> i know way too many metallica facts because i host a metallica podcast right but, yeah and we've done like 181 <laughs> episodes but um oh, that's crazy uh but yeah that 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 record uh, early on when i was first starting to play guitar uh before i even got into punk rock, or knew what punk and metal or sorry punk and like ska and reggae was um i discovered metallica you know uh in the late 80s i remember seeing the one video which is from injustice for all but yeah i remember uh 
getting that and then okay this is cool like this is scary and this is different and i want to learn these guitar parts you know what other kind of music do they have you know what does this band have out there and then i went to like at the time it was a music store called sam goody and i went to the m's and heavy metal and found master of puppets and the cover just looks so badass and just scary and whatever and so yeah we got that and that record has changed my life like it was it was there was thrash stuff there was ballad kind of stuff the, the clean guitar tone stuff uh and i think as a guitar player what drew me to it it was there was actually parts in the record that i could play and i could learn you know and some other stuff is so fast you know especially back then it was as a young guitar player i couldn't play that fast yet but you know a song like sanitarium off master of puppets is you know the rhythm part it's like okay i can play that and it sounds like the record it was so exciting mm-hmm. yeah and only inc- only encouraged me more to, to to keep learning guitar and getting better um and then the third one is bob marley's exodus Around the time I was getting into punk rock and stuff, I got into reggae because you know they kind of go hand in hand uh, yeah. in a lot of a lot of worlds. But um, yeah, it was it was actually you know playing guitar in, in my high school group at church. You know, and, you know normally it's just kind of like you know kind of ch- cheesy you know worship songs on Sunday morning. And we had this uh, this uh, music leader that came in, and uh, he was actually he wasn't Jamaican. Uh, I think he might be half Jamaican. I can't remember. It's been a long time, but. He, he was actually, uh, he lived in Jamaica for a long time. And he wanted to play Three Little Birds on like the Sunday morning service or whatever. And he was the first person to show me how to do like the like the, the kind of reggae uh, rhythm on guitar. Yeah. You know, like the, the ching, 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 you know, and it's, you know, something, it's, it's something that a lot of people, especially guitar players, will be like, oh, that's so easy. But it's not. I mean, yeah, you can do that. But the feel of reggae is, yeah. is to me, just as complex as the, the technicalities of metal. You know, it has to be right. It has to have the right feel. And uh, it took me forever to, to really lock that in. And, and I'm still nowhere near what Bob Marley and the Whalers could do, you know. Um, they also probably smoked 10 pounds of weed before they went on stage. <laughs> so that, that's going to help with, help with your backbeat. <laughs> um but yeah, man, that that was my introduction, and I was just kind of like, "Wow, this what is this music?" You know, and uh, and I just got obsessed, and and uh, and so that song's off the record, Exodus, which is it's kind of his, you know, it's one of his most acclaimed records. You know, it has the song Exodus on there, and um, yeah, if if you don't listen to reggae, you really should. At the very least, start with Bob Marley. I, I know that a lot of people th- think he's kind of like the. Of course, you're going to say Bob Marley because he's kind of like the king of reggae. But, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. But you know what? In the in the in the words of my friend John Davis, uh, he's the Beatles of reggae. He he just wrote the best songs. You know, there's no question. I mean, every one of his records is good. You yeah. know, I think he put out like 13 records or something, and oh, all crazy. of them are good. 
Um, and it's just, you know, it's good music to put on. It's kind of in the background. Or if you want to just like, you know, kind of chill out for the night and don't want to have the TV on, just, you know, put a reggae record on, man. It's especially like 70s reggae, man. That stuff will just, it's good for your soul. Hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, man, thanks so much for sharing, you know, so, so much stuff. This has been a, a, <laughs> sure. a big joy for me getting to finally talk with you and just kind of nerd out on on all the different bands you played in. And and, we, and I know there's lots of other ones too, uh, which maybe we can get to at different times. Little time, side but, things one day. <laughs> yeah, but thanks so much for taking the time to do this and just sharing your heart and stuff and, and your yeah, experience. Man. And yeah, it's been awesome. I, I know there'll be lots of listeners that uh, will enjoy getting to getting to hear this. So thanks for taking the time to do that. Hey, man, my pleasure. And yeah, yeah, yeah keep up the good work, dude. You got a good podcast going. Awesome. Thanks so much. Really appreciate that. We'll talk to you later. <laughs> all right, man. All right, see ya. All right, that was that fake goodbye. Oh, it really is. You really hung up on me. I thought that was a fake goodbye. All right, that's the side of the Cut this out. Cut this out. Second-rate loan shark. It's a living? It's a waste of life. <laughs>